I've got my coffee. Cheers. Big ears. Ching, 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 ching. Everybody take a sip. We're drinking cold brew right now. Look at this beautiful to-do list. How caught up we are with everything. We are on task. We are on our A-game. Podcasting is not as hard as they say it is. I know. We make it look so easy, right? <laughs> Virgo brains. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, it could be very – like yesterday when I was like, Christina, it has to be perfect. And you're like, whatever. I don't fucking care. That's why I kill everybody right now. <laughs> Are you feeling better today? I'm feeling better today. Yeah, yesterday – my teeth were hurting. My jaw was hurting. My back. Like everything was in pain. I don't know why. I was like, am I getting sick? Because you know how sometimes like sinus stuff can fuck with your teeth? Are you getting your period? Um, I might be, but okay. I also have like a little cough. Oh, weird. So I don't know. But I was just in a fucking mood yesterday. I was like, <laughs> I, was I was just throwing stuff into our notes today. And Justina, as always, the little angel that she is, is organizing it, spell checking it, fact checking it, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I do all that stuff. I appreciate you. I was just kind of dumping as no as usual. <laughs> it's all good. I got you. But like I said, you have to be like, Christina, go back and clean up your mess. Don't always do it for me because then I'll get really lazy. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. All right. We're good to go. Um, How are you doing this morning? Good. Yeah. Just a little tired, but I think, uh, I think these notes are solid today. This is going to be exciting because we're talking about a fictitious place. So our brains are just going to be able to wander a little bit today. But it's not a fictitious place. Right. It is and it isn't. More or less. It is and it isn't. <laughs> It's intriguing to me. In a way. In a way. Yeah. So I can't wait to go down all the rabbit holes today. We had it on our topics list, but I think we threw this out. I think Daisha might have picked this one. Remember? Oh, we gave, oh like, that's right. We gave her like the list of topics and she was like, all right, yeah, these three. And yeah. I think this was one of those ones. And then I, in the back of my mind, I was like, yeah, I, I do want to talk about Marie's Island, but how much can we really dig up? Dude, okay. Don't put it past us to dig deep. And we go down all kinds of avenues. Sometimes we don't even, it's like, why are we talking about this? There's a reason. There's a yeah. reason we're talking about certain things within this episode. Yeah. It, it has it context. Always, it always comes full circle and it's all connected. It's all connected. Yeah. I found a couple things that it's all connected uh, a little later on. And I can't wait to show you those things. Cause I like my mind was blown. Like when I was like finding like these little, little things mm -hmm. and I was just like, oh my God. Yay really is all connected have you ever been to where we're talking about martha's vineyard yeah oh we're talking about martha's vineyard today well we're talking about maria's island but we're also talking about the zip code we'll get to in a second um but martha's vineyard i think i was there when i was like really really little mm. and i think my parents always tell me the story and it's a little embarrassing what of how I was like, I don't know, maybe one or two at the time, and my brother was conceived there, apparently. Oh. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> okay. So, so yeah, I always I always get that story. 
Okay. So I'm just like, all right, you guys can keep that one to yourselves. Yeah, I don't need to know. Yeah. I don't need to know. Never there. <laughs> I was never there. Yeah. Apparently, my, I guess, I think it was Martha's Vineyard, if I remember correctly. I'll have to ask my mom again, but I feel like Martha's Vineyard, I, that name rings a bell. I've so, always wanted to go to those yeah. islands or the Cape or something. It just looks so beautiful, you yeah. know, and I've never been past my family is in like southwestern Massachusetts and we never went that way. So going with with you to Salem will be the farthest east I've okay. been in this country. Before me and Avi started going to Salem in like 2012, I don't think I have been up that way like as an adult. Salem, I think, is probably the farthest. Well, not the far. We've been to Canada. We've been to like Niagara. Mm-hmm. But again, like since me and Avi have been together mm-hmm. like prior to that i never really ventured up that way we i think we had family in connecticut but uh that's the only thing i can remember is my mom just telling me that story about how my brother was conceived all right <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna have to re like visit that story and just ask her again if that's if it was martha's vineyard that she was talking about but, okay all right yeah. <laughs> that's the only connection i have to it let's jump in are you ready yeah this is this is gonna be a long one guys i don't know how we always managed to uh do this christina's like we only have like i don't know 10 pages of notes like we usually have 30 and i was like oh you need 30 i will give you 30 listen we there's no uh there's no minimum and there's no yeah. maximum so. there's no yeah we don't we don't cap it we don't we don't want to edit ourselves because we want to give you guys as much information and we from what you guys have told us you like the longer ones so we're giving you the longer ones until we hear any complaints we're yeah. gonna just keep doing what we're doing peep out those uh the topic map the timestamps to jump around if you want to skip like you can skim through the episodes which i love because some of the stuff you know we don't get to till later on so uh, feel free to look at our topic map we are going to be in salem october 11th through the 15th we have a listener event Friday, October 13th in Salem. Uh, that's a Friday night. The Eventbrite link will be in our show notes. Please go there if you would like to join us. That just gives us a head count. It's through a love donation and it gives you an e-ticket. Also, we will be premiering our season one poster for purchase. If you guys want to purchase that and bring it along with you, we can sign it or just to have as your own personal keepsake for this first year. I printed mine out already and I've been looking at it and on at it. It's so beautiful. Um, And I think we're also going to give away a couple t-shirts, season one t-shirts at this event. And we're going to sign them like we did in high school. Uh, So it's going to be really fun. I'm so excited for Salem. Yeah, this is a Midnight Margaritas event. So just to clarify, this is not a live show. We're not doing a live performance or anything like that. We would love to. But this year, being like the one-year anniversary, Christina's never been to Salem. We just want to keep things kind of casual. So it's just going to be drinks. So just come hang out with us. We'll have some drinks, have some laughs. Maybe we'll play a couple games, some trivia. Who knows? We'll keep it fun, keep it casual. But it's going to be a lot of fun. Should we tell them what kind of drink we're going to be showcasing? Not yet. Because I okay. don't think, I don't think, uh, did they ever respond to us with like, because weren't they going to like test, test it out? That's their idea. And they were like, we, we'll, we're tested. We'll let you know. I don't think we ever heard back from them yet, right? <laughs> I don't, not yet. It's <laughs> way, way in advance too. We're only yeah, yeah. In, at this time of recording July, but what? we have given the opportunity to create a mixed margarita drink as well as name it. So that yeah. was really 
it's really exciting yeah yeah so, in true we'll justine in, tr in true stina's fashion yeah. we're doing things like way out <laughs> that's just seems so to extra. be how we roll right right yeah, that yeah. just seems to be our our spiel but yeah. um but it wasn't even our idea they suggested it which was really nice they did yeah that's yeah. true they they suggested that and so that's really exciting that someone would even give us that option yeah so we hope we see you there check out our links uh, for the Eventbrite e-ticket, sign up there and come join us in Salem. Right. Are we ready? Take me to New England. So as you guys knew, know from the title of this episode, today we are talking about Maria's Island from the movie, which in the movie is referenced as zip code 02568. Okay. So yeah. if you're wondering where in the movie it says that this town is that zip code, we're going to get into all the scenes that take place on the island in a second. Christina's going to take us down that rabbit hole. But I wanted to touch on this zip code really quick because back in October when we started fishing through this movie for topics to talk about, that scene when the aunts and Sally are walking out of the post office is what caught my attention. So it's in this scene that we can actually see a sign that's hanging on the post office building and the sign says quote post office then under that there's a small blue star and then under that blue star it says maria's island 02568 okay mm -hmm. so now also there's another sign off to the right that also says maria's island again and then it has small print under it but i can't i can't it's not that legible okay and, and the screen's kind of fuzzy so i can't see mm -hmm. what the other sign says mm -hmm. but i saw the sign with the zip code and that just like popped out at me. So when I saw that, it piqued my curiosity because I know a lot of times the film industry, they'll use like fake numbers for things like addresses and even phone numbers, like the common 555 number that we always see in mm -hmm. films, which by the way, if you're wondering why that is, there is a whole article that I found on cbc.ca, which explains that when movies and TV shows began using phone numbers more frequently in their plot lines, people who actually own those numbers started to complain that they were getting too many prank phone calls. <laughs> that's not surprising right right exactly so uh, imagine those people who own that number eight six seven five three oh nine i was just oh thinking my, that oh my god yeah so so the phone companies reserved 555-0100 through 555-0199 wow. for fictional use specifically cool. so some films as far back as the early 60s use the 555 prefix also i came across in this article um i think it was the movie bruce almighty with jim carrey with is that the one where morgan freeman plays god i think so yeah and there's a phone number that no, number is not a 555 number and people also try to call that number so. <laughs> you know that there's a phone number you can give out like if somebody asks for your number yes. a specific phone number wait that you can call and when they call it you get rickrolled Oh no, I didn't. I don't know about the Rickroll one. I know about another one that if you call it, um, it it uh, sends like I'm imagining this is for guys who try to pick up chicks at bars. Like you just give this like a random dude your this fake number, and then mm -hmm. it sends them to this voicemail and explaining that like, you know how they're kind of a dog and stuff like that. Uh um, <laughs> so I know there's another phone yeah. number you can dial, and it gives you like random otter facts or something like that <laughs> or like facts on bgs or something something super random so i was wondering if the usage of this zip code in this film was that same type of deal right for two reasons first of all because we know that maria's island is a fictional place so how can we give a fictional place a real zip code right 
Right. And number two, because we know that Practical Magic was not even filmed in Massachusetts. It was filmed in Coopville, Washington State. So not only was it filmed in a different state, it was also filmed on the opposite coast entirely. Mm -hmm. So the zip code piqued my interest. So I decided I decided to plug it into Google Maps just to see what the actual location of this zip was. Was it fabricated for the film? Is it a real place? What's the deal? So I plugged it in and what I found was fascinating. Okay, so on Google, when you type in the zip code 02568, the result that comes up is Vineyard Haven, Massachusetts. And I never heard of Vineyard Haven because it's a very small town on an actual island off the coast of Massachusetts. And this island, the small town of Vineyard Haven resides, is actually the island of Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, now I've heard of Martha's Vineyard, never heard of Vineyard Haven. Mm -mm. So it was so odd to me that like they pinpointed this like very small town within this island, you know? So Martha's Vineyard is part of a group of small islands that actually make up Dukes County. And all of these islands contain many other small towns, beaches, state parks. So we're going to get more into the geography and the history of Vineyard Haven and Martha's Vineyard a little later on. But I just wanted to point out that this is in fact a very real and working zip code in Massachusetts. Massachusetts, cool. which Maria's Island, the fictional setting of the film, has apparently adopted for Hollywood's sake. So this really made me wonder why didn't the writers or whoever worked logistics in the in in the script advisory department why didn't they just fabricate a zip code? You know, what? like especially since Maria's Island is fictional to begin with, why use a working Massachusetts zip code for such a specific place? I'm just like maybe it's. Perhaps it was a little Easter egg and a nod to actual Massachusetts since they did, in fact, film in Coopville, Washington. Right. Who knows what the actual reasons for using a real working zip code in correspondence with a fictional island is? But it would be great to talk to someone someday who can give us the answers. <laughs> you pointed out, too, that they also have Massachusetts license plates driving around, right? Yeah. Yep. Oh. Yep, they do. Yeah. But you ha you really have to look. Mm -hmm. That tiny, tiny, they didn't have to put a zip code on that post office. Right. They didn't have to. Why did they do that? Why did? Why? Why? Exactly. Why? <laughs> why? So I thought it was just so interesting and fascinating. And now knowing what we know, knowing where the zip code resides, we get to deep dive on more Massachusetts lore. As you guys know, we just did the Sudbury, uh, the whole pilot and the Sudbury magic and lore episode. Um, but we're going to get into all the Vineyard Haven and Martha's Vineyard history and lore later on. But before we do... We're going to jump into the movie and how Maria's Island is depicted in the film. Now, just to reiterate, all of the Maria's Island scenes in the film were actually shot in Coopville, Washington. And we do plan to do a Coopville episode, so just stay tuned for that. But Christina, why don't you take us on a little journey through Maria's Island as shown in the books and in the film? Let's do this. So firstly, let's talk about the town that shows up in the books, the quote unquote Maria's Island that never gets a name. It's just just New England, small town New England, Massachusetts, right? Right. Um, but some of the spots that the town does show up, keep in mind, like Justina said, we're going to kind of stretch reality a little bit. And if you want to get out your maps, get out your maps. <laughs> Coopville, because a lot of these scenes, I'm going to be taking you down streets and stuff in these scenes and everything kind of goes along one street, but there's plenty to talk about. Right. So Samuel Diaz was the first to introduce a lot of the uh, species of trees that line the Maria's Island streets, including the magnolias, which we just talked about on episode 38. 
Um, we know that there's a hardware store from the Practical Magic books that Michael works at. We know that there's a drugstore in this town because the woman who comes knocking at the back door, Irene, works at this drugstore in the books. We know that there is a park with a pond of some kind because after Michael dies, Sally goes walking to the pond. She sees the aunts and her girls playing there. I'm not sure if this pond is Leech Lake, which is mentioned in the other books. Ponds and lakes, different in size, but there are two nasty swans that live in this lake. There's a green field where boys play soccer. That's on page 45. There's a town green where the lightning struck the two boys, Franny and Jet knew from their past. In this town, there's a market and a gym. It's mentioned in Practical Magic on page 20. Uh, there's a few mentions of Endicott Street and is it Peabody? Street. Yeah. Okay. And then in Rules of Magic, there is mention of a main street. And then lastly, we get mention of a public library on page 40. And one of its rooms was used as Maria's jail cell in Rules of Magic on page 314. This is mentioned. I'm just making an observation. Um, so Endicott, they mention Endicott and Peabody Street, I guess in reference to this town where they reside. So I'm thinking that Peabody Street. I'm wondering if in the book, since we know Maria's connection to Salem, right, mm -hmm. and the witch trials and John Hathorne, I'm wondering if the books is more based in Salem, you know, of all of that history that Alice kind of connects everything with, um, as opposed to more Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard as is shown in the movie. Is there an Endicott Street in Salem or around um, Salem? I don't remember off the top of my head. Let me see. Give it a look. Because I think in the books that they are... They intersect. Yes, yes. There is an Endicott Street. And also in the book, she mentions Essex Street quite a mm -hmm. bit during mm -hmm. Maria's days. And mm -hmm. there is an Essex Street in Salem. I'm thinking that the books are more geared or more centered around Salem yeah. and the movie for Hollywood's sake. And because it just looks more glamorous, mm -hmm. is more Cape Cod and Martha's mm -hmm. Vineyard type of island kind of feel. All right. We're going to take you through a couple scenes and just need to jump in whenever because i want to know what you've noticed what you've seen okay. um but in this town we get our first shot of course of maria's island around 10 minutes into the movie and it's a shot like justina said of the front of the post office where franny jet and sally emerge with their mail and the letter from jillian and this location is actually in coopville and it's 22 front street washington state and i never wrote down what it was oh no <laughs> god damn it all right, that's all right. We'll do a whole Coopville episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to yeah. do, yeah. By the way, all these locations, just to reiterate, these are all Coopville, Washington locations, but it's supposed to come off as if it were Massachusetts. Yeah. Do you want to look up what that is real quick? Yeah, I'll look up what it is. Coopville, Vale Wine Shop and Tasting Room. And the building is now brown. By the way, I heard that they painted all the buildings in that town white just for the film. It looks so good. Why didn't they leave it that way? I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I think they got permits to paint everything white for the film. And then wow. I guess once the film was done, it everybody painted their stuff back to <sighs> what it was. So the women are walking. Okay, so picture in your mind, northeast, southwest. And it, this is perfect. Coopville's perfect for this because everything is facing the right direction for us to imagine. So the women come out of the post office and they start walking east down the road. And we can see as it cuts to the scene where the leaves start to fall from the tree. Um, it's shot from behind the women. And in the distance, there's an intersection diagonally across from where they are. They start to cross the street. And there 
is the cluster of the farmer's market stalls. And this intersection can be found in Coopville. It's Front Street Northwest and Grace Street Northwest. The women continue down Front Street. They're walking past the farmer's market. And I tried to read the sign that it says in front, but all it says is fruits and veggies, organic produce, Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. That's all it says. <laughs> I was like, is there anything else? Yeah. So they're walking past Michael. They're Sally and Michael give their little glimpse. She does her cute little trip. And then they continue going down that road east of the uh, post office. They do the digging in the garden. The aunts have put the spell on her. Faith Hill comes in and it cuts to a pan past Michael as he's loading his produce. And we can see behind him the post office and the direction of the Owens, you know, the where the women were walking toward him before. This then cuts to Sally running toward him. And she's running from that post office direction from like Alexander Street is what it was called. But this is past that post office. So the opposite direction in which the women were walking home. So let me let me say that again. So I don't know if maybe they went to the farmer's market first. You know, they they exited the post office. They went toward the farmer's market down the street. Maybe they hung out at the farmer's market. They went backwards. Uh-huh. Do you think they turned around and went home? Do you think they're hitting up the farmer's market? Or do you think they went in a big ass loop? Because every time they come into town, they're coming from that Alexander Street area. Uh-huh. And that's the same direction where Sally's running from when she's chasing Gary down the street? Is that the same direction? Yes. Yes. Interesting. So, but this implies that the Owens house is going to be west of the post office and west gotcha. of town. Okay. Again, it's a fictional world. We're right. just using Coopville as the the points of interest, I guess. Yes. I really wanted to make a map, take Coopville. I have some pictures below, but like do like the yeah. like all the routes they did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that would be cool. What for our Coopville episode, we'll have to get deeper into that. Okay. Yeah, that'd be so, fun. <laughs> so as she's running toward Michael, you can see some dogs chasing her, but it looks like they're coming out from around the corner, like to the right of the street. And it looked kind of, does she look like she's taking that corner also? Because that corner's not a street. It's the historic 1905 wharf, which is a pier. But in the audience, but, but the directors are probably like, how would the audience know that? How would they know if she's come not coming from a street? I know. So they're probably just like, act like you're rounding a corner. It's fine. Right, right, right. <laughs> right, right. Um, you can also see in that shot, the street sign for Front Street and Grace Street. Okay. Um, the intersection, you can see this street sign when Sally and Michael are crossing the street with Antonia and Kylie on bikes. Um, and also when in this scene, did you notice when they're saying hi to all the people they're walking with the girls on the bikes, Michael waves to an older man with a hat who's walking toward him. And this man is pushing a dolly full of green apples. <gasps> For ah, shadowing. I know. Right so under our noses. How do we not Pick that one up. On the carton, on the little baskets, on the dolly, is an orange symbol or an orange sign. So I never took notice, but inside you can see the green apples inside the bins. And I'm like, what the fuck? So the next time we see the town is when Sally is opening her beautiful shop and she enters the scene from across the street from the post office, okay? okay? And she walks past that farmer's market and it looks as if she just comes out from between two buildings on that side of the road because there's no intersecting street there across from the post office, which yeah. makes me go back to our question earlier. Did she drive there? This was 
This is such a debate. Episodes ago, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Or did she walk there, right? So if she ran her ass to Michael and came from the wharf direction, we'll say, then on this day, I feel like she drove and parked in a lot behind those buildings because like, where are you walking from? And does she have her car keys in her hand in that scene? I think so. I think she's like flipping them back and forth in her hand. Yeah. It could also just be the keys to open the shop. Right. Yeah. But like, if you look from where she's walking, you know how she follows her across the street and she's walking up the road. I'm like, why is she coming out from like an alleyway? Yeah. So I'm wondering if she parked back there. And it just could be behind the, the building parking. Yeah. So she walks up to her beautiful white storefront, which was uh, the Need and Feed Bakery back in the day. And it closed around 2019. It was owned by brothers Jerry and Doug Kroon. And they ran the Need and Feed. It was a family-owned bakery. They ran it for 45 years. Wow. But it is now the home to the Red Hen Bakery. So her shop's actual address uh, is 901 Gray Street, Northwest, Coopville. And we see her setting up her beautiful apothecary and her kiddos, Antonia and Kylie, are being goofy in the front window, just playing around like kids do. And then we see these towns kids coming down the street from across the shop, ready to fuck shit up. This street that's coming down toward her shop is North Main Street in Coopville. So after the slinging of the chicken pox hexes, the girls, um, the young girls walk back home in the direction of the post office. So again, we're thinking that their house is west of town. So we don't get back to the town of Maria's Island until about one hour into the movie when Gary is questioning the townsfolk and the go arrest her woman and her husband are waiting out in a line outside some kind of storefront. Now we really can't see what the storefront is. I don't know if it's like pickup orders, if it's another kind of postal place, but the awning you can see behind Gary and the woman behind him in that shot has like these five diagonal supports that protrude for the awning. And you also have a glimpse of the ocean, which means we're on the same side of the street that the post office is on. Mostly everything takes place on that side of the street, I think, because it has like the best sun. Yeah. Um, but with a little help of Google Maps, we can see that they are standing outside what is now called Toby's Tavern. And that's at 8 Front Street, Northwest Coopville. And then when Gary is talking to the children getting ice cream, that ice cream truck is parked just two buildings down from Toby's because we can see those diagonal awning supports again in the background, as well as that farmer's market across the street, which means it's Wednesday, Saturday, or Sunday. And it's probably a weekend because the kids are out of school and it's the middle of the day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, why are they in school? (laughs) (laughs) They should be in school. Um. All right. Do you have anything? I'm just kind of blazing through. No, go. No, go. Go for it. The next scene, we're back outside Sally's shop after Gary buys his shampoo. And again, he's walking in the direction of the post office and wharf behind Sally. This is a weird shot behind Sally on the sidewalk. It looks like it was blocked off with a white gate and like a plant trellis of some kind. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was just to keep the distracting rest of the street from being in the shot or what, but um, it's very random to me that it's like a gate and a trellis Yeah, on the sidewalk. Interesting. Yeah. Is that, that's the one like right before Gary's walking into his mo or like little B&B? Is that the one you're talking about? It's the one where Sally walks outside and she's like, if there's something you want to know, ask me. Okay. I was thinking the other scene, you know, when she's like running into town after him and he goes mm-hmm. into, he's like going to his B&B. Mm-hmm. 
and there's like a trellis there, like a gate. Like, you know mm-hmm. how he's walking into a gate to go into his inn or B&B? Yeah. yeah, not that one. That's not really there in real life. Or maybe it was, or maybe they just used that for the film. But right. that gate's not there in real life. If you look. Right. The- it's a tiny ass little alley and we'll get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought that's the one you were just talking about. Yeah, no, not that one. Next time you see after he buys a shampoo and he walks outside, he's like most expensive shampoo I've paid for in my life, whatever he says. When they're talking, that's the scene. So the last time we're in town is around one hour and 15 minutes in. And this is this is exactly what you were just saying. It's when Sally runs after Gary to confess. And this time we're on the opposite side of the street. And it's basically across the street from the post office. And you can kind of tell because it's kind of darker. It's shaded a lot more. We can see Gary pass a building that says ice cream, which is actually an ice cream store. It's Kappa ice cream. And then he passes the Jan McGregor studio, both still open to this day. But again, Sally comes running up from behind him, but she almost, she's crossing the street, like from the direction of the wharf. I really hope y'all have your maps out because I was like... (laughs) Getting in deep. They pass a building as they're walking. She's still chasing him. She pa- They pass a building that says Barber on it. I was looking. I could not tell what this building is today. There is a little sign on it, like a tiny, tiny sign, maybe like a historical building sign, but I couldn't tell what it said. And they stop out front of what's supposed to be the inn that Gary is staying at, which is actually the Elkhorn Trading Company. And that's at 15 Front Street, Northeast Coopville. So they stop in front of that small gate. And this gate that's not really there is between the orc, the orc, the Elkhorn <laughs> and the building next door, which is called or was called One More Thing. And it was a consignment shop, but it's since closed. Here's where I think our mystery is solved, but it also gets a little like, what the fuck? So when Sally hears her daughter's crying after she and Gary make out, we see her walking back up that dirt gravel hill and behind her when she turns around you can see the wharf and the town behind her which means her home hypothetically is located on this north front street but that north front street stops being a road and ends up turning into a real dirt road in coopville so it runs past that post office past the wharf and then turns into the dirt road and goes up the hill along the coast lastly a town can also be seen in the distance when Sally and Gary are having their I wish for you two conversation. You can barely see it behind him. There's a couple lights back there. This is approximately where the Owens house would be located. In this world, when it's viewed behind Gary in this scene. Okay. So if that town is behind Gary when they're having this conversation. That means, like, we know these are two different filming locations, but if they were going to set the Owens house on these bluffs, west of the town of Maria's Island, judging from where they're standing, that what we just went over, Sally would have had to run into town, which is about 2.8 miles from her home. That's a big, that's a long run. But remember, she grabbed her car keys before she left the house. Yes. But she didn't drive back home she ran back home ran back home so does that mean that she ran five and a half miles round trip to go talk to gary and then go run back home to her daughters or did she just forget her car like why was she walking home this is the theory it hurts my brain to think about. i know i know so that was my thought that we we don't see where she's coming from until the very end and it is on that front street which is the dirt road but like if you check out the map there's it just runs along the coast and there's a tiny little like turn off bluff that the house hypothetically could sit on but that bluff's like almost three miles away from town so 
my thought is that she's most likely driving. I don't know why she would be walking home. Maybe to clear her head. Yeah, if anything. Right. Does she? Ha- but she doesn't have her keys when she leaves, does she? She has her keys when she leaves Jillian at the house. But right. I don't think she has her keys when she leaves Gary's bed and breakfast. Right. It's just so weird. But having that little map, now we know like everything just kind of takes place on that one side of the street, just probably because it has the also the beautiful ocean view. Yes. But those were the only scenes that kind of take place on this supposed Maria's Island. Correct. I'm sending you the pictures in the chat. So check those out. All right. So uh, what am I looking at here? So that first one is just the town. So you can see where the wharf is. You can see where the intersecting streets are. And then the other one is from a little farther away. And I circled about where their house could be. Okay. Oh, that's far. If that house is there and she's facing that direction, Gary's facing that direction, the town would be behind them. Uh huh. That's interesting that there's actually a bluff that mm-hmm. would have sat right there. Right. It, it, that's not the one that they actually use. They use one on what, uh, some island. Uh, what was it? Was the name of the island? Oh, what was the name of the island? Is it not San Juan, right? Friday like Harbor. Friday Harbor. It's just interesting that that front street turns into a little dirt road that does wrap around to like, what is this? Coveland Street and then Coveland Street can go loops back into town. So I guess technically the women could if if they're really like hardcore walkers, it's feasible that they could go that direction, I guess. I but that's a far walk, man. It's a far walk. Far. That yeah. does not seem realistic. I'm sorry, Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> I'll include these maps in our show notes. All right. Sounds good. I want to also touch on a little bit of Alice's connection to Massachusetts. Alice actually has a book called Illumination Night, where this is also set in Martha's Vineyard. And a little bit about the book, it says, set on Martha's Vineyard, here's a stunning novel that brings the beautiful island to vivid life. A novel that weaves together the lives of a little boy who can't grow, an elderly woman who needs to save someone before she passes on, a blonde giant, a young couple, a teenage girl looking for trouble. Lives of intense, erotic longing, of quiet understanding, of willful determination. It is a novel of magic and mystery, and a literary event that confirms Alice Hoffman as one of our finest, most compelling writers. That gives me a lot of, like, big fish. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of, like, weird characters, Mm -hmm. just, like, with, like, these otherworldly like qualities right and i I think i read this book a long time ago i can't remember but i love the cover it's very pretty it's all like lanterns on these beautiful cape cod houses um though not specifically martha's vineyard alice has a pretty deep connection with this area specifically with a nearby piece of property in willfleet Massachusetts, which is on that hook, that horseshoe part of Massachusetts. There is a lovely article by Melanie Lors in the Cape Cod Times titled Alice's House, where Alice shares the beautiful inspiration that this home in Wellfleet gave her when writing her novel Blackbird House. Alice herself also wrote an article back in the fall of 2008 for an issue of the O Magazine, Oprah's Magazine, entitled The Writer's House, Turning a Cottage into a Creative Retreat about this Cape Cod escape. Wellfleet is within Cape Cod, so I'm guessing it could be the same house. That would be pretty lit if she had like two vacation houses, like two writing houses. But um, I'm going to link the article. It'll be in our hero sources. Uh, You can read the full article for yourself. It's beautifully written. She just talks about kind of reviving, putting a new life into this house to help fuel her 
her creative writing. I just went to both of these articles and I'm kind of disappointed. Like neither one of them has pictures of this beautiful house that she's describing. You think like the, the magazine, privacy. I guess so. But it's like, if it's the inside, then like they're not really showing the location of it. Like right. if you're if you're doing a piece for an article like in a magazine, if I was that magazine, I'd be like, can you send some pictures of the, of this of these rooms you're talking about? <laughs> yeah. I know she lives in Boston, but she's very tied to the coast of New England. So you can see that in a lot of her writing. How far did it, did it say how far Wellfleet is? From? It didn't look very far because the uh, Martha's Vineyard's just south of that little hooky hook off the coast or the coastal part of Massachusetts. Okay, I see. So it is about two hours and 40 minutes. It looks like you first you have to drive from Wellfleet to the tip, which is close to Woods Hole or Nopska Beach. And then from there, from Woods Hole Terminal, it looks like you have to take a ferry from there oh, wow. to Martha's Vineyard. That's a long boat. That's a long ride. boat, yes. <laughs> it looks like they uh, port you at the Flying Horses Carousel Cute. near that. Um, I guess there's a bluff there, Oak Bluffs Town Beach. Cool. Oh, Steamship Authority Oaks Bluff Terminal, that's where it dumps you off. <laughs> Don't and, then you, and then you even have to drive more from that terminal all the way to to actually get to Martha's Vineyard. I didn't realize that island was that big. It's huge. Yeah. Is it really? I, I Googled it. I think it said it's like the fifty the fifty-eighth largest island in the United States, I think. All right. Do you want to tell me a little geography and history? Yeah, yeah. It looks like you could still do that as like a day trip though. Like the mm -hmm. whole I mean, three hours, three hours there, three hours back. So, I mean, it, it'd probably be more worth it to do an overnight trip, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, we're going to get into the geography and history and the origins. And uh, Christina found some cool resources here. This is actually going to be a mixture of these three resources just to like have like a nice chronological order of things but the three sources are the first article is from vineyardvisitor.com and this is the article is called a brief but comprehensive history of martha's vineyard the second uh source is from archive.nytimes.com and the article is titled original Vine vineyarders and then the last article we will be referencing here is archive.nytimes.com the making of martha's vineyard so we're gonna start off with some geological history so the islands of martha's yeah they're multiple multiple islands off the coast of Massachusetts. Oh, wow. So the island of Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, as well as the entire Cape Cod Peninsula, were formed by the slow movements of massive sheets of ice during the last Great Ice Age. Starting about 2.5 million years ago, great blocks of ice, some as much as two miles thick, descended from the frigid northern cli climes onto continental Europe and North America. As the ice slowly but inexorably gouged and plowed its way south, it pushed before its mounds of earth and rock. Here, in a more temperate climate, and over thousands of millennia, the glacial advance slowed and some 20,000 years ago began to recede. During this period, Martha's Vineyard, as well as Nantucket and the Elizabeth Islands, was connected to the mainland, and humans trekked to the area to establish settlements. As the ice melted, sea levels rose. Some believe today's level is 400 feet higher than it was during glacial times. And the island's connection to the mainland disappeared underwater. 
Receding glaciers also gouged large holes in the earth, which in turn fused with underground springs to become the streams, bogs, and freshwater ponds found throughout the Cape and Islands. Wow. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Science. <laughs> Hashtag science. <laughs> Rock debris and glacial till, which is sand and clay, pushed south by the great sheets of ice, were left behind after the glacier retreated, forming much of the terrain of Martha's Vineyard as we now know it. Throughout the island, but more pronounced along its western side, are moraines, which are small hills formed from glacial deposits, and great stones. Wascosim's rock is a good example, seemingly dropped out of the sky. Also left behind were outwash plains, the flat or gently sloping surfaces most common along the island's southern and eastern coastal areas. Are you Googling what Wascosim's rock is? Yeah. Oh, it is looks that? like just like a straight up square, like a oh. like an ice cube. It has okay. a big crack through the center, but it doesn't look like it belongs there. Where is that found? This looks like it is in Chilmark. Okay. Yeah. We talk a little bit about Chilmark a little later on. So theories regarding the earliest arrival of Europeans on the island are also inconclusive. Some believe that the Vikings, who had established bases in today's Greenland and Newfoundland, attempted to settle the New England area some 500 years before Columbus stumbled upon the Americas, but were repelled by substantive resistance by indigenous people. There is no evidence that Vikings ever arrived on Martha's Vineyard. However, in 1524, the Italian explorer Giovanni de Verrazzano the very yeah he did the ver uh, the famous Verrazano Narrows Bridge in New York that's named after him under a charter from the King of France did map much of the east coast of today's United States he is credited with naming the island Louisa although he never set foot on its shores there's a lot of history packed into this little island going all the way back to before it was even an island Martha's Vineyard and its sister island Nantucket which is really mostly a sandbar were formed from glacial moraine uh, for example the rubble left behind by a melting glacier or so geologists say the Wampanoag Indians who were here much earlier say that it was formed by the creator god Moshep walking across what became Vineyard Sound. Water filled the depression of his moccasins, rendering an island called Noepi, which is translatable to the island amidst the streams. The tribe had settled throughout the island, but were based in the southwestern peninsula at Akina from a word meaning land under the hill, thought to be a reference to the massive Akina cliffs. And we're gonna also talk about those a little later on too. The Wampanoags were, and remained to an extent, a communal group with an economy based on the distribution of land and goods. Their subgroups were ruled by sachems, or chiefs, organized into a confederacy of the larger Wampanoag tribes under a supreme sachem. They based many of their teachings and legends on their leader Moshep, a giant semi-deity possessed of great strength and power who resided in the Akina Cliffs and taught his people how to fish and hunt. He was said to wade into the ocean to catch whales, dashing them against the cliffs, which explains oh. the reddish color of their clay today. Oh my god. Yeah. He ate entire whales and tossed the ocean behemoths ashore for his people, and today, the tribal symbol of the Akina Wampanoags show Moshep on the cliffs hoisting up a great whale. And cool. we talked a little bit about the Wampanoags in our Sudbury episode. If you go back and listen to the whole Sudbury thing that we did, um, we talked all about, uh, what was it? The, the Sudbury fight and yes. um, the- in Phillips War. Yeah. And that was very fascinating to learn all about, all about that. And there was even a little bit of a Wampanoag 
history with the fiddling and the oh this weird fiddling law of Sudbury. Go <laughs> listen to our Sudbury episode. It's <laughs> it's wild. Isn't it wild? <laughs> we bounce all over the place. That was a wild ride. Yeah. So a little bit about the European colonization. This is summarized from uh, one of the three sites we gave you before. So things were relatively quiet for a couple thousands of years. And then during the most monumentous field trip since the Roman Empire, Europeans colonized America. In 1602, a fellow named Bartholomew Galsnold, possibly a friend of William Shakespeare, landed on this island. Legends say that he found wild grapes growing here. And back in England, he had a baby daughter and or a mother named Martha, potentially connected to William Shakespeare. Hence the name. So he claimed the island for England and then went home. Like, what the fuck? He, he fucked off. <laughs> Wait, that's so, that just seems so counterproductive. Like, yeah, let me name this for it. myself and then I'll see gonna, you later. I'm going to jet, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Thomas Jr. founded the first European settlement in 1642 at Egertown, finding the resident Wampanoags as good neighbors. Tensions escalated during the King Philip War in 1675 to 1676. Named after the mainland, Sesham named uh, Metacomet, which we also talked about in the ed other episode, or King Philip, as dubbed by the English. He rallied Wampanoags and other Native American forces to resist European encroachment on their traditional lands. The war was disastrous for mainland Wampanoags, resulting in significant casualties and the death of Metacomet himself, whose skull was displayed in Plymouth for 25 years. By the end of the war, only 400 mainland Wampanoags survived. Despite the island Wampanoags' neutrality during King Philip's War, it had lasting impacts on the relations between Native Americans and their English neighbors. Over the following centuries, English settlers intensified their Christian proselytizing efforts, converting many Wampanoags into, quote, praying Indians. Evidence of this history can still be seen in Christiantown, a township established in 1660 by the Sachem named Josias for his group of converted Native Americans. The township includes an ancient cemetery and the Mayhew Chapel named after Governor and Missionary Thomas Mayhew. Before the mid-17th century, white settlers had firmly established their presence on the island, led chiefly by Thomas Mayhew, originally from Tisbury, England. He was appointed, quote, governor of <laughs> governor for life of Tisbury Manor, end quote. So he was named this and around 1642, named the vineyard and some surrounding islands, quote, the country of Dukes County to gain favor with the Duke of York, despite the apparent redundancy in the name. Wait, hold up. So he gave himself or no, somebody they appointed this article insinuates that he was appointed the governor for life. But that sounds like a name that like he probably might have he gave given himself. <laughs> It's like, you know, when you're a kid and like, I'm king of the hill. Yeah. You're like infinity, infinity, king forever. Like, <laughs> that's not, that's the vibe I'm getting from this guy. I don't know. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Under Thomas Mayhew's leadership, along with the efforts of his son, a minister, the settlers and the Wampanoags maintain peaceful and courteous relations. Mayhew's orders dictated that no land should be taken from the native islanders without their consent or fair payment. Consequently, the vineyard became unique in colonial America as it experienced no violence between the indigenous and settler populations during King Philip's War. I don't know how true that is. I'm going to take it, you know, 
for what it's worth with a grain of salt. Right. Mayhew's son, Thomas, continued the mission of converting the Wampanoags to Christianity through, quote, good works, although not all were persuaded. Despite this, Martha's Vineyard remained a place of relative peace and harmony. However, as the American Revolution unfolded, the vineyard initially tried to stay neutral, but eventually sided with the cause of liberty. After enduring several British plunderings, the islanders supported the revolution and demonstrated their commitment by famously blowing up a local flagpole the British intended to use as a sailing mast. <laughs> Dude, are you fucking proud of me for getting Wampanoags down? Yeah. Okay. I was practicing. You're doing well. Doing good. <laughs> In the face of the inexorable westward expansion of the white settlers, the Wampanoag people were pushed further toward Aquina, an area on the island. The majority of the European descent islanders engaged in farming and fishing, but the whaling industry became increasingly prominent, leading to significant wealth and development in Great Harbor, later named Egertown. The stately white Federalist style whaling captain's house, constructed from the early 1800s, serves as a reminder of this prosperous era. Among the island's famous whalers was Tashtego, who achieved enduring fame as a main character in Herman Melville's classic novel Moby Dick. While other notable whalers also hailed from this island, Tashigo stands out as a legendary figure in the literary world. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about whaling a little more. We got I got some maritime history coming Hell your yeah. way. Hell yeah. You ready okay. for that? Yeah. Um, but first we're going to get into the 19th century to present day Martha's Vineyard, uh, I guess the islands. Uh, including Nantucket. So between Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, the Wampanoag tribe numbered around 700 until a mysterious epidemic nearly wiped out the Nantucket tribe, with the last survivor passing away in 1855. Some Wampanoags from the mainland and Cape Cod relocated to Martha's Vineyard, increasing the population slightly. But by the mid-19th century, there were only about 40 full-blooded Native American tribal members on the island. In 1928, under the federal control of the Borough of Indian Affairs, the Wampanoags of Martha's Vineyard and the mainland formed the loosely organized Wampanoag Nation, granting limited self-government within tribal lands and paving the way for eventual full tribal recognition. In 1987, after years of petitioning the U.S. Congress, the Martha's Vineyard Aquina Group received federal and state recognition as a Native American tribe, becoming the only Wampanoag group in Massachusetts to achieve the status. As part of the recognition, the tribe regained nearly 500 acres of tribal lands in the area previously known as Gayhead, renamed back to its original Wampanoag name, Aquina, in 1998. While Aquina does not have a true reservation, the tribal headquarters are located in this rural section of the island. The tribe is governed by an elected tribal council. <laughs> it sounds like a survivor. Isn't there like tribal council? In, yeah. In yeah. <laughs> Which uh, traditional positions held by a chief and a medicine man who retain their status for life. Damn. Wow. So despite the passage of time and its historical challenges, there has been a renewed interest in preserving Wampanoag traditions and culture. And give that guy his fiddle back, please. <laughs> the one guy. The one dude. You're like, fuck you. Just give him back his fiddle. The tribe hosts various festivals such as the revived legends of Moshe pageant, reenacting ancient tales with traditional dress and performances. Cranberry Day celebrates the traditional harvest with singing, dancing, and a potluck supper. The Wampanoags have maintained 
a strong sense of community, providing affordable housing for tribal members and elders, and owning several island businesses. The 19th century witnessed significant developments on the island. Edgartown, with its safe harbor, thrived during the whaling boom, becoming a vital port for clearance papers and custom dues. Other areas, like West Tisbury and Chilmark, prospered through agriculture and fishing. The Azorian whalers introduced a cultural dimension, contributing to the multicultural heritage of the island. Europeans settled as a community of farmers and fishermen, and both occupations continue to flourish. In the early 1800s, the basis of the island's economy made a decided shift to whaling. Never as influential as Nantucket or New Bedford, Martha's Vineyard nonetheless held its own, and many of its whaling masters returned home wealthy men. Especially during the industry's golden age, between 1830 and 1845, captains built impressive homes with their profits. These, along with many graceful houses from earlier centuries, still line the streets of Vineyard Haven and Edgartown, both former whaling towns. The industry went into decline after the Civil War, but by then, revenue from tourism had picked up and those dollars just kept flooding in. And this is still like one of like such a tourist tourist attraction because it's oh my gosh beautiful. but like highbrow oh like, yeah like cream of the crop kind of tourists <laughs> yeah. yeah um how beautiful though like that those houses are still there right you know just these grand estates so, so pretty. much history like how much upkeep from being like in the elements like you are just boom in the ocean basically and for being a coastal town being exposed to all that salt water and air Oh, man. You have to have money to upkeep a place like that. Right. Exactly. In that vein, it's a resort. So let's talk about the making of this resort. The story of the vineyard's development as a resort began in 1835 when the first Methodist camp meeting, a two-week gathering of far-flung parishes for group worship and a healthy dose of fun, was held in the Oak Bluffs area, barely populated at the time. From the original meeting's nine-tenths, The number grew to 250 by 1857. Little by little, returning campers built permanent platforms arranged around this central preacher's tent. Then the odd cottage popped up in place of the tent, and by 1880, Wesleyan Grove, named for Methodism's founder, John Wesley, was a community of about 500 tiny cottages built in a hybrid of European Gothic revival styles. Uh, Lacey filigree insets of jigsaw-cut detail work Mm, that felt good in my mouth. <laughs> Known <laughs> as gingerbread, began to appear on cottage facades, and the ornamented look came to be known as the Carpenter Gothic. Real quick before you move on. So this style, okay, this European Gothic revival style, known as gingerbread, we talk about this a little later on when we talk about some of the, you know, fascinating places to visit if you ever oh, go to Martha's Vineyard. Oak nice. Bluffs um houses this group of little gingerbread cottages they're very colorful they're very whimsical they're very if you ever go to like disney world and you're ever in like epcot uh what was it norway or oh yeah looks very storybook like denmark or something so cute yeah totally and i'll show you some pictures of them a little later on but i just yay yeah they're adorable (laughs) lace filigree inset jigsaw cut detail work (laughs) that feels so good in my mouth (laughs) 
<laughs> Meanwhile, burgeoning numbers of cottagers coming to the island each summer helped convince speculators of its desirability as a resort destination, and in 1867, they laid out a separate secular community alongside the campground. Steamers from New Bedford, Boston, New York, and elsewhere brought in fashionable folk for bathing and taking in the sea air, for picking berries and playing croquet. Grand hotels sprang up around Oak Bluffs Harbor. A railroad followed, connecting the town uh, with the beach at Katama. The Victorian seaside resort was called Cottage City before its name changed to Oak Bluffs. More than 300 of the campground cottages remain, and just as Edgertown and Vineyard Haven reflect their origins as whaling ports, so Oak Bluffs, with its porch-wrapped beach houses and a village green where families still gather to hear the town band play in the gazebo, evokes the days of Victorian summer ease, of flowing white dresses and parasols held languidly against the sun. That sounds so beautiful. It sounds just, really nice. I just want to be in that era minus, minus all the dangerous shit i, <laughs> I was gonna say minus the corsets yeah minus and the camphor in the air oh my god dude i wanted to tell you that it's real quick sidebar aaron's camphor the other night was at about an eight and i was like i'm gonna just back this down i'm just not gonna talk about it i can't remember what it was but i wanted to text you so bad it wasn't to an 11 but still i was like are you fucking are you gaslighting me right now <laughs> Your camper's about an eight. You uh, <laughs> turn down that light. Turn I down. need you to turn down the gas. Turn down the gas. <laughs> Is your name Kyle right now? Because <laughs> you're you are the gas. Uh, the 1850s brought setbacks, leading to an agreement that segregated the native population to the western side of the island, forming Akina. Despite the segregation, the Wampanoags were fully integrated into the hearing community thanks to sign language, fostering oh, inclusivity. You have more on this, right? I, I do. I do. There's like a whole population in Martha's Vineyard that came up with their own like version of sign language. It's That's crazy. Fascinating. All right. Later. Okay. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to that. More on that then. Mm -hmm. The Methodist revival in the 1830s brought summer visitors to Cottage City, now Oak Bluffs, with the colorful cottages and a reputation for easy access to liquor. Uh, the area was called Nobnocket. Nob that sounds right. Nobnocket. By, by the Wampanoag people and was first referred to by the colonial senators as Holmes Hole. Homes for a Wampanoag term for old man and hole meaning a sheltered inlet. By the 19th century, it was more commonly spelled Holmes Hole after the descendant of John Holmes, 1730 to 1812, who had settled in the village during the second half of the 18th century. The village officially changed its name to Vineyard Haven in 1871. The name Vineyard Haven technically refers only to one section of the town of Tisbury. The names are used interchangeably, and Vineyard Haven is commonly used as a title for the whole town. Vineyard Haven is the main point of entry to Martha's Vineyard and one of the three main population centers with Edgertown and Oak Bluffs. The Steamship Authority Wharf is located in Vineyard Haven, where ferries arrive and depart year-round. A second season wharf is located in neighboring Oak Bluffs. The year-round population is only around 2,000 people, but that number increases tremendously in the summer, as you oh, can imagine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lots of tourists. Yeah, so that Steamship Authority, that's where it would have dumped Alice off if she was traveling from Will Fleet. Got it. So this haven is part of Dukes County? Yes. Okay. Tell so, me about Dukes County. Dukes County. All right. So on Google, 
when you plug in the postal code 02568, which is what this Maria's Island was deemed as, right? So this, this postal code is the zip code of Dukes County, which actually consists of multiple small islands off the Massachusetts mainland. So Dukes County consists of the island of Martha's Vineyard, including Chappaquiddick Island, the Elizabeth Islands, including Cuttyhunk, the island of no man's land, and other associated islets. The county seat where all the administration takes place is Edgartown, which is located on the island of Martha's Vineyard. So Dukes County was thus established as Dukes County, New York on November 1st, 1683, and included all of Mayhew's lands, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, and the Elizabeth Islands. The county was transferred to Massachusetts on October 7th, 1691, just one year before the Salem Witch Trials. Wow. Yeah. And at the same time, Nantucket Island was split into the separate Nantucket County, Massachusetts. Uh, The 1695 incorporation statute created a county, quote, by the name of Dukes County, end quote, as opposed to the standard form the county of dukes which is the reason for the redundancy in the formal name county of dukes county (laughs) you know men did that yeah that's all men (laughs) um so yeah really as of the 2020 census the population was 20,600 making it the second least populous county in massachusetts because nobody can afford to live there it's so expensive um even visiting Massachusetts anymore especially in October it's just like you have to take out a fucking like a loan a second mortgage yeah exactly just to freaking visit there for four days I'm saving baby I promise I'm saving up (laughs) all right so an early seal of the Dukes County government circa 1722 uh this seal right here you see that little picture that's cool yeah I see that So that's the early seal of the Dukes County government, uh, and this represents a crude portrayal of grapevines. What? (laughs) What? I don't know what it means by crude. Doesn't that, like, Um, crude? Like, vulgar? Like, like, um, like, childish. Crude, like, they didn't know what the fuck they were trying to draw. And that's exactly what it looks like. It doesn't know, it doesn't look like they knew what the fuck they were trying to draw. it looks what like you that? said, hey, draw grapevines to a four-year-old, and that's what they did. <laughs> that's, yeah, that, that is exactly what happened. Yeah. So some of the cities that make up the 02568 zip code are Tisbury, Oak Bluffs, West Tisbury, Egertown, Gosnold, Makunicki, and Martha's Vineyard. So a little bit more about the islands of Massachusetts. There is an entire list on Wikipedia of all of the islands that are part of Massachusetts state. There are about 270, 73 islands Whoa. on this list. Wow. And I knew Massachusetts was a coastal state, but I had no idea there were so many like islands and islets that were part of it, mm-hmm. most of which are actually uninhabited. So like mm-hmm. sandbars, I guess just like really rocky terrain. Mm-hmm. Um, this says the islands of Massachusetts range from barren, almost completely submerged rocks in Massachusetts Bay, for example, Abbott Rock, first on the list, to the large, famous, and heavily visited Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. But even it said before Nantucket was more of a sandbar, right? So I've it never. Did, but there are homes on there. There are streets, but I guess it's it's just been fortified over the centuries and turned yeah. into a you know livable space. 
Yeah, people live on there now, but I guess it's more... I guess the terrain is a little rockier than the... I have no idea. I guess Martha's Vineyard. I don't know. I've never been to either one as, you know, not a potato. <laughs> <laughs> not a potato? Like, as a child, like... As far as I know, I was there. I was at Martha's Vineyard when I was like two, but I don't remember that. Um, I would love to go as an adult and just, you know, experience all that. It, it sounds lovely. From one side of Nantucket to the other is about a half hour drive. Okay. So bad. pretty small. Um, yeah, uh, 13.3 miles. Much smaller than Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. Yeah. So the recent history of Massachusetts islands includes creation by flooding, connection to the mainland, and subsumption into new land. Several islands existed as hills in western Worcester County and eastern Hampshire County until the 1930s when the Swift River was dammed amid controversy to create the Quabbin Reservoir to meet demand for water in the Boston metropolitan area. So Castle Island, Deer Island, and Nut Island all in Boston Harbor have been attached to the mainland and remain islands in name only. Castle and Nut Islands now form the ends of peninsulas due to land reclamation, while Deer Island was attached to Winthrop Peninsula by the New England hurricane of 1938. Governor's Island and Apple Island now constitute the land underneath the runways and tarmacs of Logan International Airport. Hey, there it is. Yeah, hey yo, and are included in this list despite their appearance. Many of the Boston Harbor Islands that are located under Logan's flight paths are part of the Boston Harbor Islands National Recreation Area. Interesting. Although, yeah, this is so, this is fascinating. All, I feel like we need to like live in Massachusetts after we do all all these episodes. We'll take a tour. For as much as like we're not from Massachusetts, we talk about it like we are from Massachusetts. Right. <laughs> right. We don't have the accents. Yeah. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Um, although most of the islands are in or near the Atlantic Ocean, several islands in western Massachusetts are found in the Connecticut River, and a few others are surrounded by natural or man-made lakes, ponds, and wetlands. In the 20th century, Martha's Vineyard experienced various transformations. Jaws, the iconic film shot on the island, brought it international recognition. The real estate boom attracted wealthy individuals who purchased summer houses and the influx of tourists boosted the local economy. Although Dukes County, compromising Martha's Vineyard, experienced a surge in prosperity, it remains among the poorer counties in Massachusetts. What? <laughs> Apparently. Nonetheless, the island's allure continues to draw people who are passionate about preserving its unique heritage and natural beauty. I have a question. I know we have more on Jaws later. I don't really remember the movie at all. I've seen it many times, but it's always like you always catch it in the middle because it's on TV. Yeah. Is the is it actually like mentioned in the movie that it's supposed to be Martha's Vineyard or is it just that's where they shot? I think we get to that a little later on when okay. we talk about pop culture. Okay. Um, I do know that Jaws, I don't know if the actual movie was like supposed to be based in Martha's Vineyard, but I do know that the inspiration from the movie actually came from a series of shark attacks in freshwater in, um, I think, Manasquan, New Jersey. What the fuck? Yeah. Freshwater yeah. sharks? Yeah, it's nuts. Oh, no. And there were multiple attacks in the same, like, inlet of freshwater. Dang. I think, I think it was Manasquan. Damn. Um, the Grim Life Collected, who we talked about tons of times mm -hmm. on this podcast, um, I'm one of their probably biggest fans. I watch mm -hmm. all their fucking videos. But they actually did 
a video, I believe, on these shark attacks That's in amazing. freshwater in New Jersey. Weird. Uh, there were a few people on YouTube who have covered these shark attacks, but that's I think that was the basis for the movie Jaws or for the story. But it, I don't know if the actual story they may take place in Martha's Vineyard or if they just film there. So we'll talk. I'm so confused. Yeah. I was confused at freshwater shark. Like yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's why like people will like kids would be like fishing or playing in this freshwater, not thinking fucking sharks are gonna be no, but. I guess a shark or a couple sharks found their way in through this like saltwater oh, yeah, inland makes sense. into the freshwater and I guess they found food there so ultimately they're oh like all gracious. right well, if, if people are hanging out here I guess I'll hang out here and just <laughs> oh fucking eat everybody yeah so crazy shit back to I guess we're gonna talk about we were talking about the airport Logan airport before but now we're gonna talk about Martha's Vineyard Airport air services provide. Okay, so this is how to get, I guess, how to get to Martha's Vineyard. It says air services provided from Martha's Vineyard Airport if you want to get in and out of there via, I guess, airplane. Oh. Um, so the most reliable source of public transportation from Vineyard Haven to the rest of the island is the Martha's Vineyard Regional Transit Authority, other wise known as the VTA. Almost all the buses stop at the Vineyard Haven Steamship Authority bus terminal, and it is the most used in the summertime and year-round. The VTA is the only island-wide public transportation system on Martha's Vineyard, which makes it the best choice for traveling around the vineyard for tourists who do not have cars and who do not want to pay for a taxi. Wow. I guess that can get very expensive if you're trying to cab it around the island. It looks like that Steamship Authority is like very north Tisbury is between Tisbury and Oak Bluffs in that little Bluffs. inlet there. Yeah. Must be the most like protected area to get into in and out of. I'm sure. Yeah, I don't know what kind of like restrictions they have in place as far as like getting on and off the island. All right. <sighs> Let's talk about the real Maria's Island. I wanted yeah. to do a little good. I was like, is there is there an island anywhere in the northeast or even over near Coopville that says Maria's Island? No. But we did find one off of the coast of Mexico. Mm -hmm. And you gave me all the Spanish. So we're going <laughs> to I'm sorry. So a little on the actual Maria's Island, La Tres Marias. So there you go. this island chain is made up of four islands and it was mostly uninhabited except for the Maria Madre Islands, which until 2019 held a prison like an alcatraz type deal yeah cool i love like a spooky ass prison <laughs> yeah. um so where are these islands located the islas marias las tres marias are a small archipelago of islands located in the eastern pacific ocean lying at a distance of 94 kilometers from the coast of mexico's nayarit state and 322 kilometers from the tip of the baja california peninsula the islands were named after three women called Mary in the Bible. Isla Maria Madre is the largest of the islands, followed by the Isla Maria Magdalena, and further south, the Isla Maria Cleofas. A smaller island, San Juanito, lies just off of the Isla Maria Madre. So what are the what's the history of these islands? The first Europeans to discover the island was Diego Hurtado de Mendoza, who gave them the name the island Islas Magdalenas. The island saw use of the penal colony, uh, Islas Maria's federal prison, from 1905 until 2019, when the president, Andre Manuel Lopez Obrado, announced that the prison was to be closed and 
would be replaced with a cultural center that would be named after Jose Revueltas. The prison colony was mainly uh, engaged in agricultural, some farming and fishing. Far from the harsh reputation of places like Devil's Island, in more recent times, the Islas Maria had harbored mostly low-risk prisoners from whom the prison quote, the prison without walls, was viewed as a step toward reintegration into society. Some prisoners were even allowed to live with their families. So in 2010, the Islas Marias was designated as a UNESCO biosphere reserve, UNESCO, uh, a specifically protected biosphere region. The Tres Marias Islands are home to a diverse array of flora and fauna, including the Tres Marias raccoon, the endemic Tres Marias cottontail rabbit, and so the landscape is composed of grasslands, scrub, deciduous, and sub-deciduous tropical forests. Since the prison's closure, researchers have found 21 species of sharks, 10 different rays, three species of sea turtles, and healthy coral reefs. Whale sharks visit the waters off the marias, and other species such as sardines, tunas, and red snappers are thriving. The reserve is also an important nesting and feeding site for large colonies of seabirds. The main prison complex is in the process of being converted into an environmental educational center named after the prison's most famous inmate. Can you say that last name again? Jose Revueltas. Jose Revueltas. Uh, the Oh, my God. Jose Revueltas, environmental and culture. So visitors will be able to tour the remote island jails, specifically oh the area known as Puerto Belleto, but there is no plans to allow overnight stays at this time. I need my own telenovela. Oh my god, girl, you're so good at this. <laughs> so visiting the island. Can you visit the island? or islands. The prison closed for good in 2019, and since December 2022, these islands have actually been open for recreation and leisure for people who wish to visit the islands on their next vacation. Did you look at pictures of this island? It's actually like, they're really beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, I bet <laughs> so it is. beautiful. So converting this prison into a vacation spot was one of the first tasks of Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Abrador in 2019. Maria Madre Island will have several tourist attractions to visit during your next trip. For example, the site museum tells the story of what this island was like in prison times and what happened there for more than a hundred years. You can visit the Plaza Juarez, the town center, the Guadalupe Temple, and the Muros de Agua. What is what is Muros? Muros de Agua Jose Revueltas Auditorium, where you will see murals. Oh, I guess murals. Um, murals representative of the islands made by the prisoners. Hiking and urban or mountain biking will also be available where you can observe impressive landscapes from the steep hills and monuments such as the Cristo Rey and the lighthouse or along paths and trails that run through the island. The Camaronera, Calera, and Salinera, former forest labor centers for convicts, will be open to the public. On the natural side, visitors can enjoy a photographic safari to see the diversity of flora and fauna, especially several bird species. And from the Punta Halsonas viewpoint, incredible views are promised. So, Christina, tell us how we can visit Las Islas Marias. All right, so, so far, the only way to get to the Marias Islands is arriving at the Puerto Baleto, is sailing from the port of Mazatlan or San Blas. San, San Blas. San Blas. 
I've lost you. Very an approximately five hour journey. Um, flying to the islands will be possible by the end of this year, 2023. Very the soon. cost of the trip is around 5,500 pesos and that about 270 US dollars per person for two nights. Not bad. So, yeah, that's, that's cheaper than Salem. <laughs> oh my God, I know. <laughs> Uh, for reservations and ticketing purchases, we are going to link uh, the Maria's Islands website. So check our show notes for that. And it includes tourist class seating, buffet meals, single beds, uh, round trip transportation, access to the natural protected areas, guided tours, and travel insurance. Whoa. Prices, yeah, that's a lot for 270 bucks. Dude, <laughs> that's crazy. I know. It's crazy. Prices may increase depending on the ferry class and accommodations. The most expensive is around 8,000 pesos, and that's around 400 US dollars, including transportation in a private cabin, food, drinks, lodging in a two-bedroom house, round-trip transportation, access to the natural protected areas, guided tours, and travel insurance. The tours operate on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, and all activities are centered on the Maria Madre Islands, since the other three islands and inlets don't have tourist developments yet. Uh, so it's important to mention that there are no ATMs or card payments on the islands, so bring that cash. Bring that cash. Bring the cash. Beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. I'm interested to know what they, how they relocated the prisoners that were still there. Right. Or where they went. Yeah, it said that they were able to live with their families, and it seemed like it said the prison without walls. So yeah, it's just an island. It seemed like more of a prison, maybe a halfway house. Like, you know how, yeah. like, when somebody just gets out of jail and they're trying to reintegrate into society, and it's like kind of like a holding place until they're mm -hmm. able to make that transition? That's what it kind of seems like. It doesn't seem like an actual jail. And if you're surrounded by like shark infested waters, like, you ain't trying to escape. Yeah, I don't think anybody's jumping. Yeah, if yeah. you are, you got a death wish. So. Right. so that's if you wanted to go to the Maria's Islands for a vacation, little tourism. But what about if you want to go to Vineyard Haven for a little yeah, tourism? Yeah, what yeah. are we doing? So speaking of the tourism, we're going to jump, go back to Vineyard Haven, Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, a.k.a. Maria's Island. Yeah. Um, so here are some of the notable attractions of the island. And these are from various sources. I kind of just scoured different travel sites for the ones that intrigued me the most. Okay. All of the websites and blogs mentioned will be added to our hero source page. So be sure to check those out if any of these sound interesting to you. And if you have visited Vineyard Haven or Martha's Vineyard in general, we would love to hear about your travels. So send your Martha's Vineyard stories to magnoliastreetpodcast at gmail.com. So the first place that I thought looked very interesting was the Martha's Vineyard Museum, also known as MVM. And this is a historical and cultural institution collecting art, artifacts, oral histories, documents, and photographs that help tell the stories of Martha's Vineyard from its formation as an island to the present. Founded as the Dukes County Historical Society in 1922, it was officially renamed the Martha's Vineyard Museum in 2006 to better reflect its focus on both collecting the history of the island and presenting, educating, and sharing it with the public. In 2011, MVM purchased the 1895 Marine Hospital site in Vineyard Haven and set out to transform it into a new museum. MVM made the decision to maintain ownership of part of its original Agartown campus in order to continue to steward the historic Cook House and create a public garden for the community. In March 2019, the Vineyard Haven site opened to the public with great fanfare and a blockbuster exhibit celebrating the island's profound influence on the work of Thomas Hart Benton. 
and the suggested runtime or visit time for this is about one to two hours. And that was from uh, tripadvisor.com. Beautiful building. Yeah, yeah. Next up is the Akina Cliffs, which we talked about briefly earlier. So Martha's Vineyard's westernmost tip features multicolored clay cliffs and the two-century-old gay head lighthouse. So if you are trying to reach the cliffs, park at the overlook and take in the commanding views of the clay bluffs and the surroundings. Then visit the historic lighthouse nearby. Browse the gift shops to bring a few souvenirs home, swing by in the morning. It's easier to find parking if you go in the morning. So just to note, fog sometimes does roll in later on in the day, so this can obstruct your view. So the best time is to go in the early morning if you can. You can hike through the green shrubs to Moshe Beach where clothing is optional. Oh, shit. Yeah. So just make sure you keep your shoes on as the shore is quite rocky. And in reference to, quote, the nudity being entirely optional, (laughs) according to an article in Atlas Obscura, Although the law here and most places requires you to wear clothing, those who choose to go nude have by and large remained unbothered on the strip of sand for decades. Um, So signs do forbid you from taking any clay away with you or applying it to your body because the clay is the property of the local Akina Wampanoag tribe and the tribe believes that the clay is red because their legendary founder Moshup used to feed them by bashing whales against the cliff and the whale's blood dyed the clay red, which is what right. we learned earlier. Yeah. Yeah. So don't take the clay. Don't put it on your body. Don't fuck with the clay. Um, but if you want to get naked, <laughs> you can go sky. You can go sky clad if you want to go sky clad at the Akina Cliffs. No, apparently nobody will bother you. Go have the nakies at the Akina Cliffs if you want to. Mm-hmm. Next up, we have an array of Martha's Vineyard lighthouses. So the island of Martha's Vineyard features five stunning lighthouses. So first, we have the East Chop. Lighthouse, the Egerton Lighthouse, and the Gayhead Lighthouse, all three of those, according to TripAdvisor, are not only historic reminders of a bygone era, but they are also working beacons of light. They still send light out into the night, so those are still working lighthouses. Yeah, and then we have the West Chop Lighthouse, which is a little off the beaten path on a residential street. But it still has a breathtaking view of the ocean, and it's considered a hidden jewel, according to one of their one of its visitors named Carol S who left a beautiful um, review on TripAdvisor. And lastly, there is the Akina Lighthouse. According to a visitor on TripAdvisor, the lighthouse is located at the top of the Akina Cliffs and it is open to the public for a small entrance fee. You can climb to the very top where the revolving light is located, uh, but there is limited time parking at this location. And this visitor says, I mean timed. Overstay by just a minute and you'll receive your souvenir parking summons from the town of Akina. (laughs) So if you're going to go to tour the lighthouse, visit the shops and have lunch and then park in the lot at the bottom of the hill. Next up, we have Circuit Avenue. So this is an offbeat and quirky shopping enclave in Oak Bluffs. This is the main strip in Oak Bluffs. It is lined with small local retail shops, ice cream shops, restaurants, a grocery store, a liquor store, kitschy uh, souvenir shops. It's only a few blocks long, but it does have some street parking. This location has seemingly mixed reviews on TripAdvisor. What? Yeah, some consider this street a tourist trap. One person considered it an armpit. (laughs) Oh, no. Another person 
said that they didn't have any bathrooms in any of the restaurants available to their patrons. Um, however, others insist that if you go off peak season, you will have a more relaxed and pleasant experience. So okay. just make sure you're not going when all the tourists are there. Um, yeah. I don't remember what it said that the peak season was, but do your research. Mm -hmm. Also, I want to personally note that judging from the photos on the TripAdvisor page, Christine, if you can click that uh, little link that says Circuit Avenue, check that out. You see those pictures? Hold on. There's one I that... see Barack Obama. I love, <laughs> I love, 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 like all the town greens with the gazebos and the huge Victorian mansions, like just, yeah, yeah. just in the background. So pretty. There's a photo. It's right before the photo that says Flying Horses, oldest carousel in arcade. It's like right before that photo. I think it was that street. That looks very much like the main street we were talking about. That's like what exactly. So there are some angles that look very similar to the yes. center of town and Practical Magic. And I'm wondering if Circuit Avenue lended itself to the inspiration when they were located. Location oh, yeah, I could see that. For the film mm -hmm. and i think we have talked about this and established in the past that they didn't film in massachusetts due to the high cost so maybe when scouring the west coast for filming locations because it was a lot cheaper to film out there they noted some of the qualities of circuit avenue maybe and tried to find an aesthetically mm -hmm. similar town to serve as the backdrop for practical magic's yeah. town center that's just my theory because this when i came across this circuit avenue i was like oh my god that looks just like the practical Poopo. magic center yes. exactly i agree that book that I mentioned earlier, that Illumination Night mm. that takes place in Martha's Vineyard, is a real thing. I didn't know that it was like a real thing. If you if you type in Illumination Night, I was trying to find a picture of the houses to send to you because okay. it's like four little Victorian gingerbread houses all lit up with Chinese lanterns, and it's so pretty. And it's an actual it, event. Do you did you? It might be it might be Oak Bluffs where this it, these yeah are. it is it is in Oak Bluffs. It's just not these houses you're going to touch on. Okay, so this like is her cover the cover of her book these little four houses oh really yeah oh it's so cute it's very cute but Wait, it's like lit up at night. yeah i'm gonna have to check okay i'm gonna have to check that out check it out all right that's fascinating so okay so we know that she's been there alice she's been there yeah she's been there but like it's amazing like how much inspiration this woman has taken from massachusetts mm -hmm. in it just blows my mind. So these gingerbread houses in Oak Bluffs, um, a visitor by the name of Les F. wrote on TripAdvisor, these cottages are a must-see in Oak Bluffs, all different colors and varying sizes. There are over 300 gingerbread cottages on 36 acres. The cottages are very colorful and ornate and are located in a campground at Trinity Park, close to Circuit Avenue. The main street in Oak Bluffs, which we just talked about. So many of the cottages are lived in year round and some only in the summer months. Residents welcome visitors, but ask that they be respectful of private property so that the serenity of these private grounds can be maintained. While walking, I think that goes without saying, but you know, sometimes you gotta, you gotta tell people anyway, cause people are <laughs> stupid. Um, while walking around and looking at the cottages, be sure to visit the tabernacle, the centerpiece of the campground. So religious services, community, uh, sings, concerts, and many interesting lectures are held there during the busy summer months. And the highlight of the summer, here it is, comes with Grand Illumination Night when hundreds of porches are crammed with lighted lanterns. Do give that thing a Google. Yeah, I will. <laughs> All right. Quick. 
So at that time, thousands of visitors and residents of the campground celebrate old-fashioned tr- traditions. So, all right, I'm going to look. I think we should go to this sometime because it looks <gasps> beautiful. Oh, that's so pretty. It's so pretty. I want to go. I want to go. Oh, my God. I know. Stunning. That is stunning. All right. Bucket list. Bucket list. <laughs> That's our that's our Magnolia Street podcast bucket list. Oh, that's yeah. Let's start that right there, right there. So Salem, we're hitting that one this year, and then Illumination Night, Illumination Night, and then uh, also Maria's Islands. We want to go to these, the Mexican Maria's Islands. Those those look pretty. Those look pretty legit. Yeah, and then um, some yeah. kind of so, Curacao. We gotta go to Curacao. Curacao. Wasn't there a pub that you found in Essex that looked pretty dope? That looked pretty, the black, it was like Black Rabbit. Wasn't there like a play on Black Rabbit in in Essex? In Essex, I don't remember the one in Essex, but there was a few up in the New England area. The next uh, attraction on this list is the Polly Hill Arboretum. So this arboretum is a public garden. The grounds are open to visitors daily, sunrise to sunset, year-round. Tours are available daily at 10 a.m. in July and August and by advanced reservation otherwise. Tours are uh, free with $5 admission. So I guess it's kind of more of like a donation. Uh, So the Polly Hill Arboretum uh, Martha's Vineyard Landmark was developed by the legendary horticulturist Polly Hill. Uh, Okay, yeah, so that was a woman who lived between 1907. She, She passed away in 2007. She was a hundred years old. So recent though, like she's a hundred you know, years old. Yeah. Yeah. Cute. Yeah. So within our lifetime, she existed. Um, it's so funny when you read about people who like these like places are named after you always just assume that they were like, you know, it's like old, old timey, yeah. you know? Yeah. But no, she was alive during our lifetime. Also passed away during our life. Well, not alive during our life, <laughs> not born in our lifetime, but <laughs> existed during our lifetime and passed away in our lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, so um, she began her collection of unique plants in 1958. Established in 1998 as a non-profit, not-for-profit institution, the Arboretum is devoted to the cultivation and study of plants and the preservation of the character and magic of this tranquil landscape. There are 25 acres of cultivated landscape open to visitors, and the remaining 47 are preserved woodlands. In 2015, the Polly Hill Arboretum was designated as a historic district by the National Register of Historic Places. Rare trees and shrubs. Okay, first of all, do you see where I'm going with this? I'm, rare, I'm watching, rare I'm looking. trees and shrubs from around the world are set among stone walls, meadows, and fields, including Polly's famous North Tisbury azaleas, the National Stewardship Collection, camellias, hollies, rhododendrons, crabapples, conifers, magnolias, and many more. It's all connected. There it is. <laughs> Usa Dogwood Alley Perennial Border, Monkey Puzzle Tree, and the Julian Hill Magnolia, it's all connected, are favorites with visitors. So there you go. And talking about it's all connected, all of these like all connected moments on this podcast, are you ready for this last recommendation? Are you ready? I'm not even going to look ahead. I mean, let's be real. There's tons of things to do and see on the large island of martha's vineyard but we got to cap this somewhere and what better way to end this segment than this next attraction this is called the black dog tavern oh black dog black dog black eyed doggy call it my dog can like what 
Speechless. Speechless. Yeah. According to the tavern's website, for many men, there is something especially alluring about a sailboat and the sea. It's the bond between a man, a boat, and nature, a dream of stepping back to a simpler time. Captain Robert Douglas had that dream. In February 1964, his boat, christened the Shenandoah, sailed a course for Martha's Vineyard. A black lab boxer mix named Black Dog, he's just named Black Dog, after a Treasure Island character, would come aboard in 1967. The dog, captain, and boat would be nearly inseparable. One cold day in 1969, over a bitter cup of coffee and a dry packaged store-bought donut, the captain's dream included a place where vineyards and visitors could enjoy a good cup of chowder and friendly conversation year-round. That dream began as a sketch on a napkin. In 1971, the doors to the Black Dog Tavern opened. Everyone said that the chowder was just right and there wasn't an empty seat in the house. In the corner by the fireplace, the captain and his dog watched with satisfaction. The food was great and the fire warmed the room with a glow that only a fireplace can impart. The legacy had begun. Years later, the Black Dog logo has become famous all over the world. The Black Dog has come to stand for the highest quality from baked goods and freshly prepared meals to apparel and gifts for the home. Out of one sailing captain's love for the seas, his island home, and of course his dog, the Black Dog brand was born. And that is from right from their website, theblackdog.com. And if you go to their website, they also have... Um, a little YouTube video, a little like mini documentary, like more of a visual account on, uh, I guess, the creation of this brand and the whole backstory. It's really amazing. Cute. Yeah. And they also produce their own line of rum and wine. So a little bit gotta about- gotta go here. I know. I know. This place looks so picturesque. Right? So a little bit about the Black Dog Rum. So Sailors, schooners, and rum share a rich and often entwined history. In the 1700s, sailing ships supplied Caribbean molasses. Had to bind your legs with molasses. <laughs> to many rum distilleries of the Massachusetts colony. And during the days of prohibition, schooners were used to transport rum for smugglers. In fact, these organized missions were referred to as, have you ever heard of rum running? Nice. Have you heard that term? Ah. So this tradition carries on through our founder, Captain Douglas, whose passion for the sea and sailing ships dates to his youth on Martha's Vineyard. In 1960, Captain Douglas designed and built the extreme top sail schooner Shenandoah. She has sailed the New England waters for over 60 years with the Alabama, a 1926 schooner, which was rebuilt and commissioned by Captain Douglas, joining her in 1998. The Shenandoah's keel was laid in 1926, making her a living piece of American marine history. Captain Bob brings the same passion to the Black Dog Rum. Our master rum blender sources premium aged rums, then blends and bottles them in small batches in Massachusetts, bringing you high-quality cocktail-ready white rum, as well as elegantly sippable dark rums and ready-to-drink canned cocktails. Do you like rum? I do, yeah. I do too. Do like me some rum. Um, I like spiced rum. Are spiced you more? Rum? Of a, do you like more of like a a white rum or do you like the? Spice? I like more of a white rum because yeah. everybody's got that like one thing that they know, like doesn't work with their bodies. Like okay, spice rum makes me like very emotional and cryy. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's so sad. 
Taylor Jerry's. Um, Avi got a bottle of that once, and that made me <clears throat> quite quite the good time. <laughs> <laughs> My brother used to be super into the Kraken. Okay. Um, which cool bottle, like cool yeah. logo, but ooh, like yeah. oh man. Uh, let's see. Okay, so then they also make wine. So Black Dog partnered with New England's Boston Winery to bring you their own brand of all-natural wines made without sulfites or preservatives. They offer, I think, three different wines. So they offer a Cabernet Sauvignon, then a 2016 Shark in the Pond, which is a custom blend of two select Chardonnays. Uh, I never heard of this wine, a Viognier? 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 I don't know. Yeah. And Sauvignon Blanc. And then the third wine is a bruschetta, which is a juicy wine with hints of raspberry. And there's um, some extra wordage and descriptors on this website if you want to go check out more of their wines. Um, but they do make a bunch of tasty sounding wines. And then last but not least, they also have their hand in philanthropy, which is very admirable. I love a, a business that gives back to their community. And the Black Dog brand actually hosts doggy adoption events at their general oh. stores, and oh. they do cleanup days at their local beaches. They partner with like-minded nonprofits or through the sales of specially designed products. And the brand strives to support their local communities and the people and pups who live there. And we will link their philanthropy page in our show notes. That's adorable. Oh, isn't that cute? Yeah, their site is really cool. They have like, I think I've seen that logo on t-shirts before, but they have menswear, women's wear, yeah. uh, housewares. I've never heard of them before, but like this article says, we've seen the logo all over the world and mm -hmm. it's apparently world renowned. I've never heard of them, but it seems like they're doing a lot of good stuff here. So <laughs> I, if we ever go to Martha's Vineyard, we have to pop into the Black Dog Tavern. Awesome. Yeah, and the name, right? The name and the connection, it's just mm -hmm. all connected. Everything comes back to practical magic. It comes back to practical <laughs> magic. Maybe just for us. I or don't we even... force it there, right? Maybe we force it there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right. All right, you ready for a break? Yes. Okay, let's take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to get into all the magic and lore of Vineyard Haven and Martha's Vineyard, which is hauntings, maritime history, and pop culture. So stick around and we'll be right back. Hey, little witches, the scene is here. If you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you would know how much we love using the Practical Magic Inner Witch Oracle Deck by Grounded by the Moon. And now we want to share the magic of Grounded by the Moon with you, our listeners. Joseph Benitez Egerton, the creator behind Grounded by the Moon, would like to offer this very special 10% off discount to all who wish to experience the magic of his Practical Magic-themed tarot and oracle decks. But that's not all. He also creates other divination tools like tarot workbooks, deck bags and altar cloths, pendulum kits, oil blends, cleansing sprays, smoke wands, teas, and ritual kits. And let's not forget about his custom handcrafted all-natural soy candles where every candle is hand-poured and personally infused and charged under the light of the moon. They even come with a crystal. And did we mention all of the ingredients in the candles are ethically sourced? All of Joseph's offerings are just so magical. So go visit groundedbythemoon.com and use the coupon code MAGNOLIAMAGIC for 10% off your entire order at checkout. That's M-A-G-N-O-L-I-A-M-A-G-I-C. So get your discount today. Hey! 
We're the Stinas, and you're listening to Magnolia Street Podcast. You got your deck ready to do a card pull? Yes, I'll do. No, I lied. No, I don't. Hold on. <laughs> it's always within an arm's reach, but I never have it, like, out. Again, you can go to Grounded by the Moon and get 10% off your full order by using Magnolia Magic at your checkout. Thank you to Joseph for all his beautiful work, and we really love using his deck in our show. Absolutely. And I don't know if you guys are going to hear this in time, but I do know that he's got a... a another Kickstarter campaign live at the time of recording this. Mm-hmm. Um, so check out groundedbythemoon.com and also check out his Instagram grounded at groundedbythemoon. Um, if you go to his little bio, the link in his bio, just click on that and it'll take you to like a whole menu of links. I think the very first one is his Kickstarter campaign. If you guys are interested in checking out the new decks he has coming out, I think it's like a three- Oh like yeah, a, a three deck project. Wow. One is based on crystals. One is based on, I think, familiars, and then mm-hmm. the other is herbs. Wow! So he's got three decks that he's got in the works that he's getting backers to support. So check out his Kickstarter if you want to support his campaign, and then you get some really cool rewards in return for supporting his campaign. I don't know how he has the energy. That's I, insane. Good for I you. He's amazing. But we are using his uh, Inner Witch Oracle. This is the, I think, believe this is the second edition. Uh, this is the, I think this is the new moon deck. It's got the holographic edges. Pretty. Yeah, I do have the gold one as well, but I don't know where that one is right now. <laughs> um, all right, so we're going to shuffle up, I guess, and Ready. tell me when to stop. <clears throat> stop. What is that? Practical magic. Practical magic. Wow. <laughs> Look at that. How about that? How about that? All right. So yeah, the, the name of this card is actually Practical Magic. And the image on this card is a full moon with a witch hat riding a broomstick with some glitter. Very cute. So the uh, keyword on this card is energy. Practical magic. Yeah. <laughs> it all goes back to that story, right? Mm-hmm. Um. So... The keywords on this card is universal energy and spirit. So this card represents the fifth element, spirit, a non-physical energy that exists between, within, and above all other elements. Attune your energy with the divine energy. The universe supports you. Connect yourself with all of the elemental energies to engage your practical magic. This card is telling you to fully connect with the four elements to bring forth this magical fifth energy and connection. Feel the earth, listen to the wind, drink the water, and witness the fire. Harness the power of these energies with physical representations or a candle for each color. You can also use the power of one white candle to represent the connection to all. Use the power of this card and its affirmation to enhance the magic in your life. And the affirmation on this card or the mantra is, I embrace my magic. I like that. I like that uh, at the end of the film, she once she embraced her magic, all the townspeople rallied behind them. And I think that's a wonderful aspect of their community. Just yeah. be yourself. Yeah. When you are being your true authentic self, you are in alignment, right? With spirit 
And I feel like that's when all of the magic really starts to happen. You see things lining up for you. You see the synchronicities. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just crazy how things line up and the divine timing and trusting and having faith in that is like, I am like learning that so hard more now than like I ever have or have ever consciously noticed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just been really, really all documented. It's like within the show, basically. So far, so far. We'll see what the next few months holds for us. More to come. More to come. Stay tuned. We're not going <laughs> to spill any secrets yet, but we got nope. some stuff cooking up our sleeves. like, shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're going to, we're going to leave you guys hanging on the edge of your seat, but mm. just mm-hmm. stay tuned. We got some, we got some good <laughs> stuff coming. All right. We'll be All good. Right. So the next article we have, we're going to get into a little bit of lore, and this is from VineyardGazette.com. And this was interesting to me. It's The title was just called Witch House, and this was written in 2017. Interesting because there is a, actually, there's a house in Salem called Witch House. There is. So this was compiled by Hillary Wall. So let's see what they have to say. Okay. So it says the transition from the farming fishing community that the vineyard was to the summer colony and shopping center, which it is today, has obliterated many of the old landmarks well known to the past generations. The vanishing of the sheep flocks from the hills and the abandonment of the older farms and the, re- the reclamation of such lands by nature have all tended to bury deep in brush, wood, swamp, and even new turf, such traces of the older life that might remain. And thus it is that new or remodeled houses stand today in what were once meadows and tillage, pasture lands has become wood or swamp and thus it is where the witch house once stood. There are few spots on the island commanding less view of surrounding country or the waters beyond. It is in fact the flat bottom of the valley with high hills on one side and woods on two others which conceal more distant elevations. It was more or less abandoned 60 years ago, and it is difficult to form a mental picture of what it once looked like. To obtain details, it would be necessary to delve far back into history of one of the old vineyard families. Uh, It may merely be said that here was once a broad estate comprising of hundreds of acres, that to all appearances, the head of the family living in his own home did what other old families did and granted to his sons as they grew uh, to manhood home sites of their own upon the broad acres. Certainly something of this kind occurred. For in addition to the old foundation are at least two more of the original estates, and the nearest to that of the witch house, which once gained for all region an evil name. Mm. Tales of all sorts have been told of who built this house, why he built it, and what transpired to bring a curse of sorts upon him and his. A foundation of fact, there is not a shred that is acceptable, and perhaps not one of the tales was true, but the house was pronounced untendable. Nevertheless, it was abandoned entirely. While yet its walls were firm and straight, and its windows did not rattle when the storm winds blew, abandoned because it could not be lived in, it was said, the reason that sand fell from the ceilings at all times, mingling with food, sifting into the hair and clothing, even the eyes and ears of the occupants. An old man of half a century ago once told of helping to hang sheets and other large pieces of cloth beneath the ceiling to prevent the sand, as it was termed, from falling, but, he added, it didn't seem to work. When it is considered that the old vineyard people were thrifty, even frugal types common to all of New England, who never threw anything away but prized any and all possessions, it seemed clear that nothing short of calamity could have brought about the abandonment of a house that was so sound and tight. 
no explanation of why the sand should have fallen or ever accompanied the stories of the witch house no living person was ever acquainted with another who had lived there the story of the sand has been known to but few although many knew that the house bore an evil name if they wondered why the majority never had the question answered all that most people knew or could say half a century ago was that there stood an empty shell of structure that once been a house sheep ran in and out of it for shade and shelter the paneling still stood smooth and well preserved on some walls the plaster also on some ceilings and partitions some of the doors were intact on the hinges particularly the closet doors and most traces of human occupancy had vanished the island has never been a place where witchcraft was taken seriously superstitions have not generally characterized its people nor has the common cure of quote hex often been mentioned throughout the history of the place yet here fell to decay a house that was solid sound and in all ways substantial when it was abandoned and the place allowed to become a wilderness where once it had blossomed and bore its natural fruits and why beyond this explanation no one knows it could not be occupied thus nature reclaimed the land that none would live upon and swallowed the whole building bit by bit until only the foundation remained these too have been slowly covered until they are difficult to find and in time will vanish completely it is a disturbing thought that any force should be so aroused as to drive him from his own home and obliterate all signs of his occupancy yet this is exactly what happened this has to be true for the nearby house has always been a home nor has it ever been visited by any undue calamity or discomfort in its history what then the mystery of the witch house the answer is not forthcoming nor likely to be those who once knew are dust even as the house and the dust speaks not this abandoned home with sifting sand nobody could figure out why it was leaking from the ceilings was dubbed the witch house and people are, people are like it's a sound structure we don't know why people left basically yeah. but this was written in the the gazette the newspaper at the time does not a lot happen in martha's vineyard i guess not so they were saying that um witchcraft and witchery was not like commonplace there right and this next article kind of goes a little deeper into that do you want to tell us about it yeah all right so this article is called island witches had em, didn't hang them <laughs> <laughs> by holly nadler okay and this is from the patch.com okay this was written october 24th 2011 civilization has historically recognized the importance of divination and during the initial three centuries of island history at least one witch was known to provide such services using various tools such as a dice tea leaves or tarot cards in the late 1700s in what is now the deluxe horse farm corner of state and lambert's cove roads in north tisbury a farmer built a new home that encroached on his neighbor's property the elderly neighbor referred to as hazel that's such an old lady name oh so my her old lady <laughs> an old lady witch name mind you because hazel was known for her mystical abilities hazel was deeply offended by the farmer's blatant encroachment and confronted him at the building site she laid a powerful curse on him declaring that the fruits of his ambition and possessions were turned to dust in his mouth choking and smothering him his family and future generations soon after the farmer moved into the completed house a strange phenomenon occurred 
a continuous drizzle of fine dust fell from the ceiling, making mealtimes unpleasant and necessitating an increase in bathing frequency. Okay, so it seems like these two articles are actually connected. I did not. It sounds like this. How many houses are leaking sand from the roofs? Right. Right. So maybe this is what caused the guy. Okay. Okay. I'm on board again. Let's because do this. this bitch, just like this hazel chick, just cursed his house to he just encroaching on her property. Just to leak sand? Yeah, 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 yeah. That would be so annoying. Rather yeah. than like having this disastrous occurrence situation, uh-huh. it's this little gnawing, frustrating thing yeah. that just the sand that trickles in daily. Yeah, 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 totally. So, yeah, so the dust was falling from the ceiling, real inconvenient. So despite the farmer's efforts to fix the issue, the carpenters couldn't find any roof leaks. The relentless dust persisted, and the family had no choice but to abandon the house. Over time, the cursed home deteriorated and returned to the land, seemingly lost forever. However, given the abundance of sand on the island, it is unclear if the house's remnants still exist beneath the surface. Among the island's renowned spellcasters was the Witch of Scrubby Neck, a woman who lived midway down a road leading to the South Shore in West Tisbury. Sailors about to embark on a long whaling voyage would seek her out to learn their fortunes, particularly whether they would survive or perish at sea. Oh my god, they called her Bezel Bubba. Kind of like Bezel Bubba. Bezel Bubba, as she might be called, had an uncanny ability to predict grim outcomes Though she sometimes sugarcoated the truth to maintain future business. Going back to Big Fish again and Helena Bottom Carter's witch's character when she lives in that cottage in the woods and the kids knock on her door to like peek into her eye to see when they're going to die, right? Yeah. This reminds me of that again. Yeah. Going back Yells to that Bubba. Scene. Yeah. Second Can that be my Big nickname? Big Fish came up in conversation. <laughs> Can that be my nickname? Bezelbubba. Yeah, so one first mate of an Egertown whaling bark chose not to pay for her services and dismissed her predictions. The enraged Bezelbubba later followed the ship to harbor, unleashing a curse on the voyage and the first mate. Throughout the journey, a large black crow haunted the sailor, attacking him repeatedly in different ports. The crew teasingly attributed the crow's actions to the vengeance of the Scrubby Neck Witch. So she's got a name, the Scrubby Neck Witch, a.k.a. Beelzebubba. I love it. I love that. Okay, we need a new t-shirt, Scrubby Neck Witch. (laughs) Scrubby Neck Witch. Okay. Hashtag Beelzebubba. (laughs) So eventually... The first mate off the coast of Ecuador took decisive action and shot the crow dead with a bow and arrow. Oh, oh that just like gives me PTSD from the whole Caden death yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, magic lessons. Strangely, on the same day, at a relative time years later, when the first mate returned home, the witch of Scrubby Neck suddenly dropped dead in her cabin, clutching her chest. So... In essence, was she, in fact, her familiar? Like, was she, like, channeling her energy to, like, go after this ship through her her familiar? Which is, yeah. like, they do the dirty work of, of witches, right? 
They're little yeah. henchmen. So while this tale may not satisfy those who despise being mistreated in terms of tips and wages, one can only hope that the first mate, if reincarnated, has had to face some comical retribution in subsequent lives, perhaps as french fries dropped on a ferry deck under the watchful eyes of seagulls, or as quahogs about to be fried at Giordano's in August. <laughs> what? Hey, what's a quahog? I have no, I've never heard of the word <laughs> in my life. Fried quahog, all right. <laughs> wow. Oh, uh, crazy. I did how, not know those two stories were connected. How those two, yeah. Um, question though. And um, I'm just like thinking of this guy that jumped ship and just like abandoned his house and went elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this scrubby neck witch, do you think she cursed his house or do you think she cursed him? So no matter where he lives, sand is going to fall from the ceiling. I don't know. And he's just going around the country, abandoning houses, and they're all just going back into the earth is just reclaiming all these houses. I wonder how much more we could find on it because it doesn't say his name, but it says her name. And I'm sure if we include, do you, is the Beelzebubba Scrubneck Witch, they're not the same as the North Tisbury Witch, right? Because the what one was North Tisbury and the other one was in the West. Hazel is at the, the Lambert Cove Roads in North Tisbury. And then the Scrubby Neck one is the South Shore in West Tisbury. Oh. That's, there might be two different women. And two different witches? So had them didn't hang them. They just kind of let them do their thing. They're like, we'll leave. We will be the one to relocate. You can stay here on the island. Right. Yeah. It seemed like anybody in Martha's Vineyard, like they just don't have time for the superstition. <laughs> I got too much farm work to do. Yeah. Let me be. They're like, oh, you want to curse my property? Have at it. You can I'm have gonna, it. I'm going to jet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they just let them curse the land it's fine whatever that's how um, i feel about like spiders on my porch or in my sunroom i'm like you can have it like i don't need this they're spider. not hurt they're not hurting anybody no. sand's just falling from my ceiling it's fine oh so weird fine. i can't eat dinner i can't bathe it's fine I'll i'm just always go. chafing <laughs> <laughs> oh so a couple God. more other weird little haunting stories this is from mvtimes.com and this so, is are these legit ghost stories do i have can i turn my light off i have a i don't know it. if they're legit i don't know this is right. we're gonna take them as gospel though okay. if you want to turn your light off go for it i'll stumble and fumble through this as best as i can best i can um, and cue the spooky music here we go this is entitled hauntings in paradise martha's vineyard is flooded with tales of the supernatural Author Thomas Dresser, known for his historical writings about Martha's Vineyard, published Ghosts of Martha's Vineyard, Haunted America in 2020, documenting terrifying accounts of hauntings experienced by people on the island. Dresser stated, just peripherally, I've been interested in ghosts forever, just because I always knew this kind of thing was out there. Dresser had always been intrigued by Ghost and joining a writing group with Cynthia Riggs and John Hugh Jr. about 20 years ago. One day in 2007, Riggs and Hugh got a call from the History Press publishing company and Dresser explained, I already had a topic I was working on. It was an unsolved murder from 1940, so that was the stepping stone. Initially hesitant to write about spirits and hauntings, Dresser reconsidered after the editor suggested interviewing people for ghost tales. He recalled, I normally rely on clips from old Vineyard Gazette articles and documentation from the Martha's Vineyard Museum. Ghost stories seemed like a major divergence, but the editor's idea intrigued him and he thought, 
that might fit the bill. Although the island already had a renowned ghost expert in Holly Nadler, she encouraged Dresser to explore the subject further. He mentioned, She'd done a fine job for 25 years, and the last thing I wanted to do was step on her toes. Wait However, hold up. Holly Nadler, that's the chick who wrote the article we just read about the witch. Oh my god! What the fuck? Crazy! Right. Okay. I am impressed with us. <laughs> it's all connected. It's connected. Wow. All yeah. right. However, Nadler told him, it's time to pass the torch. I like to say she passed me the lantern. Oh. Dresser, Dresser began his ghost research at the Edgar Town Council on Aging, where several people reported seeing a young man on the third floor who would appear at random and then disappear without a trace. He said, I've talked with three people who work there who say there is definitely a presence there. They've felt it. Once Dresser became more public about his paranormal investigations, more folks came forward from experiences they had personally, or about people they knew who had seen something inexplicable that frightened them. At the old Victorian Inn, now the Christopher, in Edgartown, witnesses described to Dresser a strange and disturbing scene. He recalled, there were some people staying at the hotel. Some sailors came in wearing raincoats, walked right through the room, and then disappeared at the other side. It's like that lady from, uh, what was her name? The inn, the wayside inn. Yeah, yeah. J J Badusha. What's her name? Jadusha. Jadusha. or something like that. Jerusha. Jerusha. Jadusha. Dread, what is it? Jerusha. Jerusha. Because yeah. we were saying be someone's Jerusha today. Yeah, yeah. Just right. disappearing through doors. It's cool. Yeah. Another terrifying account of an event that purportedly occurred in the old Standish house in West Tisbury continues to awe Dresser to this day. He recounted, as he walked past the living room, there were all these redcoats dancing and drinking. Women were wearing colonial dresses. The person just thought it was something like a play or some sort of Halloween party. The next day, he asked the innkeeper, and she said he was the only guest at the hotel that night. Not the fuck up. No, shut up. Dude, it's like that scene. Have you ever been on the Haunted Mansion ride in Disney World? Years and years ago. I was like 14. You know that like, scene when the cart goes past the ballroom and you see like all of, like the yeah. silhouettes of the ghosts dancing? Ooh! <laughs> Chili willies. Chili willies. We're going to have some spooky ookies in October. Like, our ghost stories are going to be so fun. I can't wait. I can't wait. Okay, go on. For, for Dresser and many supernatural enthusiasts, explaining the spirit world often comes in the form of an easily graspable metaphor in the physical world. He likened spirits to, these phenomena are compared to what we think of as a fingerprint. You put a fingerprint here, and you can't see it unless you put some powder on it. Okay. Ooh. Part of Dresser's trepidation when he first considered writing about ghosts was his concern that people would make up stories just to get attention. But according to him, the sincerity of each person's account came through in every interview he conducted. He said, something odd absolutely happened to them. And it just makes you realize that we don't know everything. Actually, we know very little. Mm -hmm. Holly Nadler is often referred to as the ghost lady of Martha's Vineyard. She's been giving ghost tours, writing about ghosts, and speaking at various public events for many years. Unlike Dresser, who said he simply isn't receptive to the spirit world, Nadler has had many encounters with the supernatural. Her first experience happened when her best friend died in a tragic car accident. She recalled, 
She was driving up to Colorado and ended up flipping off the side of a steep mountain road. Oh, my God. oh that is so terrifying. Nadler would leave her apartment in Pasadena and walk down to the Pasadena Playhouse where she was going to school. She'd often leave the record player going for the spirits in her living room. She was already enthralled with the paranormal. She had the idea to leave a record on that her late friend enjoyed during her life. Nadler said, I remember Jane was just mad about Jefferson Airplane, the surrealistic pillow album. She loved Go Ask Alice, so I was going to put that album on but totally forgot the next time I left. That evening, Nadler was taking a soak in her bathtub and had left some music playing on the record player. Just as the final record was getting ready to drop, it occurred to Nadler that she forgot to put on Jefferson Airplane for the spirit of her friend. The last album was supposed to be Scott Joplin hits. Instead, what came on was the Jefferson Airplane song, Go Ask Alice. How fucking creepy. What? Nadler said. She leapt out of the bathtub, looked at the album she had selected, and Jefferson Airplane wasn't even on the record playing. I bundled up a bag of clothes and left the apartment. I never went back. It scared me to death, she said. Oh my god. Wow. Why are people just abandoning their houses? (laughs) Uh, Karen Coffey is the psychic and owner of Piwaka Inn Vineyard Haven. She's lived in haunted houses throughout her life and has personally experienced some of the anomalous activities described in books by Nadler and Dresser. Coffey lived in the Vanderhoop homestead in Akina for a time, an experience that she said was one of the greatest challenges of her life. The homestead is rumored to be one of the most haunted places on the island. Coffee would lock all the doors before going to sleep at night, she said. And when she awoke in the morning, the doors would be wide open. Mm-mm. At 2 a.m., <clears throat> no. when she said most of the activity would take place, one of the windows would blow open and the curtains would be flying furiously, while the adjacent window curtains were completely still. I recall being asleep and the mirror came crashing down off the wall. Other times I would wake up in the morning and everything on top of my bureau would be strewn on the floor. Not like it had fallen, but it was placed there, Coffee said. I'm getting fucking goosebumps. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Coffee lived in another purported haunted house at 100 Center Street in Vineyard Haven, an old sea captain's home built in 1858. When Coffee's son was about two years old, he would spend time out in the hallway where he had his toy box. One day, he came into the living room while Coffee was folding laundry and asked if his friend Kayla could come and play with his toys. I thought this was an imaginary friend, but my son had actually made contact with a little girl who fell down the spiral staircase. My son told me Kayla fell and broke her head. Coffee said, there's an awful lot of history here, a lot of tragedy. Sometimes when people die, a part of them never leaves this realm. You can't always see them or experience them, but other times you can. Do you? Okay. So kids are so receptive to that stuff. The kids other are side. creepy as fuck. Kids are creepy as fuck. But like, I'm like, did this poor little boy, this poor kid see her in her dead, like, uh, what is my like brain? her messed up death yeah. version of her? Yes. Yeah. Did he see her accident version? Of accident herself? version. Oh my God. Uh, he must oh. not have been afraid of it. Traumatizing. Yeah. Um. Did you ever see the Ghost Whisperer by uh, with uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt? Oh yeah, long time ago. Whenever like the ghosts would come to her, they would come to her in their like damaged form, like like right what they look like as a result of their death. 
like the accident that they had like she number was 13 sitting... ghosts with matthew lillard yeah yeah and uh yeah with the house shannon... like the... elizabeth shannon elizabeth no no no, no. it was like this glass house that tony shalhoub and his kids like inherit or move to and like the basement is full of like these trapped ghosts and one of them is his dead wife <gasps> dude this movie is so good i want you to tell me about my most favorite thing a maritime history let's do it all right um there was an article that i found real quick before we i didn't i don't know why i didn't put it in here but there was a mysterious uh shipwreck in chappaquiddick in egerton massachusetts so the scarce remains of a sunken ship peek out from the sand on east beach i'm going to send you this link real quick and okay. i will also link this in the show notes so check this out this is from atlasobscura.com so in the winter of 1866 a severe blizzard tore through martha's vineyard and the surrounding islands the wind has driven around us wily and the snow has come in overpowering blinding blasts reported the vineyard gazette in january of that year many disasters must have occurred to the fleet of coasting vessels indeed the christina a the christina um spelt ch though oh. A schooner out at sea on her way to Boston from New York was carrying cement and five crew members when she was obliterated by gale force winds and capsized off the coast of Chappaquiddick Island. Four of the men perished by the time help could reach the vessel four days later, oh and uh, the lone survivor miraculously clung to the ship's mast for 56 hours. Oh my god. Yeah. After which both of his feet and his fingers required amputation. Oh. More than 150 years on, on assemblage of wooden planks and rusty iron bolts were found poking out of the East Beach on Chappaquiddick Island. Oh. The subtle structure emerged parallel to the shoreline after Hurricane Sandy displaced untold quantities of sand, but it was too but it was soon buried out of sight for another two years. Upon reappearing in the aftermath of a storm in 2014, the strange construction caught the eye of Arnold Carr, a local marine biologist and a diver who specializes in retrieving wreckage from keeled ships and crash planes. Carr began aggregating regional archival materials in earnest, and from his research, he put forth a hypothesis. He suggested the formation over 60 feet long and 40 feet wide where it meets the eye could quite possibly be the ruined hull of the Christina. But the location of the wreckage didn't quite match Carr's calculations for where the Christina would have likely washed up, and he subsequently postulated that the remnants could also belong to the Silver Bell, another ill-fated mid-19th century schooner. Eventually, Carr and his fellow researchers came full circle. The investigation continues, but it is presently believed that the mysterious shipwreck is most likely the Christina weird yeah these yeah. these pictures are very strange yeah so if you want to see this take the ferry from martha's vineyard to chappaquiddick island you'll cross the dyke bridge of ted kennedy fame to get to east beach a long stretch of sand on the eastern edge of the island between the waske reservation and the cape hogue poge wildlife refuge the wreckage can be seen just barely peeking out above the sand yeah so, you yeah. really got to be looking for it Right. And then I found this article called The Last Luckiest Ship, and this was written by Matthew Stackpole, and this article is from mvmagazine.com. So, when the ancient whale ship Charles W. Morgan visits Martha's Vineyard this summer, like new after a keel to main truck reconstruction, 
At Mystic Seaport, her principal cargo will not be the oil and bone of her previous travels, but the story that she alone survives to tell. It's a story with more than a few vineyard connections. No one involved could have imagined it, not the workers trudging through the snow to begin construction of the new whale ship at the Hillman Brothers shipyard in Bedford in January of 1841, nor the owners paying for the ship, nor the people who were to sail on her in the years ahead. None of them could know that this ship, set to join the whaling fleet at the beginning of what would be the busiest, most profitable decade of whaling under sail, would, in her 80-year, 37-voyage career, sail to the end of the industry she was built to serve. Nor could they have imagined that she would become the last remaining vessel of a whaling fleet that numbered over 2,700 vessels, a glorious remnant of a global industry that encompassed more than two centuries of American maritime history. So back in January of 1841, the Morgan was just another whale ship under construction at the highly respected Hillman Brothers Yard, one of 17 whale ships the brothers built between 1827 and 1852 in the busiest whaling port in the world. Many of the leading families in the whaling capital of New Bedford originated in Nantucket or the Vineyard, and Jethro and Zachariah Hillman were no exception. They learned the art of shipbuilding from their father, a shipwright who had learned the trade on Martha's Vineyard before moving from Chilmark to New Bedford in 1788. This is just the beginning of the multiple ways the Morgan and Martha's Vineyards are intertwined. Six of the 21 captains of the Morgan during her long whaling career came to, from the vineyard, including her first captain, Thomas Adams Norton of Edgartown, whose great-great-nephew, S. Bailey Norton, lives on North Water Street today. Seventeen members of her original crew were vineyarders, as were many sailors on later voyages. Even the famous Vineyard Gazette editor, Henry Beetle Howe, Beetle! There's Beetle again! Beetle! <laughs> Who, through his writing, did much to keep the history of whaling alive, was the Hillman brothers' great-great-nephew. So Charles W. Morgan, the ship's namesake and principal owner, wrote in his diary on July 21st, 1841, that it was a fine warm day, but very dry. A prosperous Quaker, entrepreneur, and abolitionist, his holdings illustrate that while the product of whaling lit the world and lubricated the Industrial Revolution, its profits flowed into many aspects of the nation's expanding economic system. In addition to the 10 whale ships he owned, wholly and partly, he was invested in the Spermaceti Candle Works and Iron Works, textile and paper mills, coal mines, railroads, insurance companies, banks, and land in the Midwest. At heart, though, Charles W. Morgan, the man was much a whaler as the ship was his name on her stern. This morning, I guess this is his quote. This morning at 10 o'clock, my elegant new ship was launched beautifully from Messrs. Hillman's Yard and in the presence of about half the town and a great show of ladies. <laughs> the journal continues. She is to be commanded by Captain Thomas A. Norton. The Morgan came to be known as, quote, a lucky ship. And she was, but the better part of her luck, no doubt, came from carrying capable captains and crew. The 32-year-old Norton had previously sailed on several of Morgan's other ships, including as captain of the Hector, on two successful voyages between 1834 and 1840. He recruited an aforementioned 17 sailors from his home island, most of them teenagers and some of them related to one another or to their captain. 
They came from Edgartown, Tisbury, and Chilmark. One, Zanis Gould, uh, was a Wampanoag. Given the countless dangers and dismal conditions of the trade, and the fact that voyages regularly lasted three to five years, one might wonder why anyone would choose to go whaling. But on the vineyard, where the finest houses and most elegant churches were all built with whaling money, and where the potential for both disaster and profit in the fishery were well understood, to go a whaling was a natural choice for boys and young men. The vineyard served as home port for far fewer ships and voyages than its near neighbors, New Bedford and Nantucket. But the island provided an outsized number of the officers and crew for their ships from all ports. So when they returned to New Bedford after three years, three months, and 27 days, the hold was full of 1,600 barrels of sperm oil, 800 barrels of whale oil, oil from any other type of whale, and 10,000 pounds of whale bone. Captain Norton, who had a one-eighth share of the ship, took his profits and retired in Egertown at age 37. Could you imagine retiring at fucking 37? Wow. If he had additionally gone to sea in his mid-teens, which is likely, he had spent almost half of his life at sea and was ready for a quieter existence. Kind of like Samuel Diaz when he was like, kind of like started planting all the trees and went through like that yeah midlife crisis <laughs> um <laughs> so but he apparently never forgot his last ship in the late 1840s he and his wife named a son thomas morgan norton it was not a family name says s bailey norton today they named him after the ship as a harbinger of what was to come in the morgan's career the first voyage was a success second mate james c osborne of Egertown began his journal of the voyage with the hope of quote may kind neptune protect us with pleasant gales and may we be successful in catching sperm whales oh that's such a cute little cute. like little prayer little um, rhyme little spell little, little spell exactly. a sea spell <gasps> a sea spell um i like how they kind of like pray to the sea gods like neptune like girl this book i'm reading there's yeah. a whole chapter about the sea gods so i'm going it. to cover that next year sailors pretty sure they're witches like they were so superstitious 100 percent. they had all these little like rituals and things that they did to kind of protect themselves while they were at sea but they were also scared of witches which is yeah, like which a is, dichotomy we'll which talk is about. really fucking ironic and hilarious yeah. to uh-huh. me um but yeah so i can't wait for that episode whenever you're ready to do that um so they didn't find whales until they were around Cape Horn and into the Pacific, but the fishing was good in the equatorial waters a thousand miles off of South America and around the Galapagos. They killed whales in the Gulf of Alaska and off of Monterey, California. Over the course of the next 80 years, the Charles W. Morgan set sail in search of whales another 36 times. She hunted in every ocean, and a list of her ports of call reads like a geography quiz. Madagascar, Mauritius, I never heard of that place, Guam, Bonin Islands, Vladivostok, Shantar Islands, Cabinda, Tristan de Cunha, Rio de Janeiro, Valparaiso, Honolulu, and so on and so on. 14 of these voyages had islanders at the helm, and though crews became increasingly international as the 19th century progressed, it's safe to say it was a rare voyage indeed that didn't have at least one islander on board. The last vineyard captain to sail the Morgan was Benjamin D. Cleveland of West Tisbury, who brought her out of retirement in 1916 and nearly regretted it. 
The ship had been laid up for three years, and it seemed as if she had sailed her last voyage when Cleveland, a veteran whaling captain, nearing his 75th birthday, decided he wanted to make one last voyage. He bought the Morgan from the J&WR Wing and Company, ending their 53-year ownership of the ship, and announced he would sail to Desolation Island in search of, of sea elephant oil. Dude, What's this, a sea elephant? This does not sound good. I, isn't aren't manatees sea cows oh, oh sea cow. cow but this elephant what's a sea, what's a sea elephant? elephant never heard of that, that. um but other, um, maybe it's a type of whale oh they are elephant seals elephant seals. they're the ones with like the big like the big Husks. growth noses like the big okay. round noses got it All right. holy shit they're so big okay. there's they're bigger than the volvos Oh my god. Just look up elephant seals. So <laughs> this dude is searching sea elephants and I guess for their oil. Other investors weren't so enthusiastic about the old man's plans to take a ship that was older than he was halfway around the world, but once again, a stroke of luck appeared, this time in the form of a movie company looking for a ship it could fix up to appear in a silent film called Miss Petticoats. Oh my god. <laughs> So a deal was struck and Cleveland used the proceeds to prepare the Morgan for the voyage and set sail from New Bedford on September 7th, 1916. Talk about the barter method. Like this guy needs the ship refurbished to sail around the world. And like, he just, just so happens this movie company finds him and is like, yeah, we'll fix your ship, but can we put it in our film? Like, wow. Miss Petticoat 1916. Okay. Interesting. Have to put it on the watch list. No, <laughs> I'm curious. I'm, I'm probably gonna find it. I'm okay. gonna find that shit. Uh, so Desolation Island is located in the South Indian Ocean on the edge of the Antarctic Sea, eleven thousand miles from home, and its name is well earned. The Morgan arrived there on February seventh, nineteen seventeen, and for nearly four months, the crew went ashore to kill elephant seals. <laughs> Not even the Morgan was immune from all the tragedy, and on April 19th, one of her whale boats heading ashore was capsized by a large wave. Four of its six-man crew, dressed in heavy clothing, drowned. Still, the voyage was a success as far as oil was concerned, and they departed from Desolation Island on May 12th with 1,100 barrels in the hold. So when they arrived at the island St. Helena, however, they learned that the First World War had begun and German U-boats were on the prowl for enemy merchantmen. Captain Cleveland immediately decided to head for home, which he did by staying out of the shipping lanes and sailing to the West Indies. From there, after narrowly missing a floating mine, he set a course into the Gulf Stream. Again, out of the usual travel routes, he crossed the busy shipping lanes near New England at night, and finally, by staying close to the dangerous but well-known to him, shoal-riddled south shore of the vineyard, made his way back to, into New Bedford to a hero's welcome. No fewer than 11 former whaling captains were on hand to greet him when he stopped ashore. The Morgan sailed on three more voyages under non-vineyard captains before coming home to New Bedford from the final one on May 28, 1921. By that point, there was only one other whale ship left in New Bedford, the Wanderer, and both relics were spruced up to be used in the 1922 silent film classic Down to the Sea in Ships. After that, however, it appeared the Morgan would suffer the same end as so many of her sister ships to rot, to sink, purchase, to burn. The latter very nearly happened in June of 1924 when the vineyard steamboat 
San Katie caught fire and drifted up against the Morgan, where she was laid up along the wharf in Fairhaven. Only quick work by the Fairhaven Fire Department saved the ship. The Wanderer was far less fortunate. That same summer, it set off on what many thought would be the last whaling voyage from New Bedford and only made it across Buzzards Bay before wrecking on the shore of Cuddyhawk in a storm. Green moved the Morgan to his Round Hill estate near New Bedford, putting her into a sand berth in the spring of 1925 and opened her to the public in the summer of 1926. He also hired George Fred Tilton to supervise the ship's overhaul and serve as her quote-unquote captain when she was open to the public. A retired whaling captain famous for his 3,000-mile trek across Alaska to secure help for several steam whale ships trapped in the Arctic ice in 1897 and a member of the well-known Chilmark Tilton clan, Tilmark was the real thing. He was also a great storyteller and ambassador for the ship and for whaling who mesmerized visitors with his tales and his knowledge. Nearly 200,000 people visited the ship in that first year. The Morgan was now the last of her kind, but a lucky ship is a lucky ship and a survivor appeared. The loss of the Wanderer galvanized Colonel Edward Howland Robinson Green to preserve the Morgan. He did so, he said, not only because his grandfather had been the Morgan's second owner, but because she represented the important chapter in American history. As the son of the famous investor Hetty Green, the so-called Witch of Wall Street, he had the wherewithal to do it. Perhaps we too, the ship and myself, compare pretty favorably. Tilton wrote about the Morgan near the end of his autobiography. Captain George Fred himself, I guess is the title. <laughs> this quote says, she is considerably older than I am, being 87 years off the stocks, but we both of us have been tumbled around by the waves of every ocean. And now that we are not wanted to hunt whales anymore, we are laid up here so that people can get some idea of how the business used to be done. The ship is on exhibition and I sometimes think I am too. Aww. So both captain and ship were landlubbers at this at that point, but Tilton, for one, didn't think it needed to be that way. Quote, I have said that the ship lacks life. Tis so, just as I do with soil under my feet, but there is this consolation. Neither of us is dead or near to it. Shovel away the sand from the Morgan sides, caulk her, and she'll go around the world, and I can sail her by Godfrey. End quote. Tilton died in 1932, but when you look at what now lies in store for the Morgan, it seems he may have been not just a raconteur, but something of a prophet. In 1941, Mystic Seaport took possession of the ship and moved her to Connecticut. In 2009, under the leadership of board chair Richard Viator of Agartown and President Stephen C. White, whose family have been seasonal residents of Agartown for many generations, Mystic Seaport announced it would not only restore the Morgan, but sail her again this summer. The decision would have pleased Tilton. As the ship still has no engine, he no doubt also would have appreciated the donation of a professional tugboat and crew for the entire voyage by Ralph Packers Tisbury Towing Company. It is appropriate, given her, her many vineyard connections, that she make her first visit to the island. In a sense, because she is sailing again, Tilton and all those other vineyarders who sailed and saved her are coming home too. Ma and the author of this article is Matthew Stackpole, a former vineyard resident and is a major gifts officer and ship's historian for the Charles W. Morgan restoration at Mystic Seaport. That was fascinating. Wasn't it? That is wild. Did you watch the new 
season, not new season, but like the Gilmore Girls, like the the newer one, the year in a life. I started to. I think I fell off. I didn't. At think, the very I end, I... the grandmother uh, Emily Gilmore ends up like living in Nantucket, and she's just going to this whaling museum one day, and the guy like is giving the, you know, the tour. Yeah. And she starts like piping in. Because she knows way more than than them. And at the very end, you see that she's like a volunteer um, tour giver. And she's stoked. She's talking about like how they would like spear whales and like use use everything about them. Yeah. And she's like, they'd stab them in buckets and buckets of blood would be spewing everywhere. And you hear like kids crying, but she is loving it. She's loving her life as a widow. That is that uh, that's Rory's grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> I don't Dude, remember the woman. Them. I don't remember her name. So we kind of hinted at this a little earlier, but there's a hidden history of Martha's Vineyard sign language. Mm -hmm. And this is via Atlas Obscura, and it's summarized. So in 1979, Joan Poole Nash discovered a lost deaf culture and language on Martha's Vineyard called Martha's Vineyard Sign Language, MVSL. For two centuries, this unique sign language was used by both hearing and deaf individuals in the Squibbanocket area of Chilmark where a high number of deaf individuals lived due to the inherent deafness. The isolated community communicated using MBSL, creating a deaf utopia. How, like, quiet town? It must have been. Growing up on the island, Poole Nash developed an interest in sign language and learned ASL secretly. Why secretly? Later, as a college student, she joined a sign language research group and decided to investigate the origins of MBSL. Through interviews with her great-grandmother and other elderly island residents, Poole Nash gathered information about the language and linguistics records, and linguists recorded their signs on video. The research revealed that MVSL had unique linguistic characteristics using two hands for older signs and one hand for newer signs. Poole Nash also found that fishermen on the island had their own dialect of MVSL. The language used facial expressions and classifiers to convey meanings similar to tones in spoken language. MVSL likely evolved in the 1600s with the arrival of deaf immigrants from Kent, England. The island's deaf children attended the American School for Deaf in Connecticut, which may have influenced the development of ASL. However, with the introduction of new people to the island and better transportation, MVSL gradually disappeared and the last fluent speaker passed away in 1950. Poole Nash's research not only provided insight into MVSL and deaf culture history, but also contributed a better understanding of ASL. The lost language remained unacknowledgeable by the community, but through her efforts, a valuable piece of deaf heritage was rediscovered. Dude, that's Crazy. wild. You could just make yeah. up a language. Yeah. And people just do it. They adapted to yeah. Yeah, the community because it was so highly uh, hearing impaired. Yeah. Wow. I guess like there were so many people there. Wow. That. So anyway, if you love movies, Martha's Vineyard may seem familiar to to you, there have been quite a few movies that have been either based there or filmed there. From romantic comedies to horror movies, Martha's Vineyard has a long history of being a film setting. While some Martha's Vineyard movies merely take place on the island, other movies on Martha's Vineyard have been filmed entirely on the island. The most famous Martha's Vineyard movies have been from the Jaws franchise, most notably, and one of the most famous events on the island was Senator Kennedy's car accident on Chappaquiddick, and which that has also been made into its own movie. Um, so these are our five 
favorite Martha's Vineyard movies filmed on the island and not our favorite as in mine and Christina's this the article is from Martha's Vineyard tourist.com and the title of the article is five great Martha's Vineyard movies that will transport you there so number one Jaws we all know this movie we briefly talked about it before again I heard it was based on the freshwater shark attacks in New Jersey odd <laughs> I know um we will i'll link that uh grim life collective video in our show notes if you guys are interested in learning more about that but anyway jaws one of the most popular movies that was filmed on martha's vineyard it was a classic from 1974 not only did the movie launch steven spielberg's career as a world renowned director but it also showed viewers that martha's vineyard was a desirable vacation destination minus the killer sharks of course (laughs) Many Jaws Martha's Vineyard scenes were filmed on one of the most popular Martha's Vineyard beaches, Joseph A. Sylvia State Beach. The bridge connecting Oak Bluffs and Agartown is one of the most recognizable sites in the movie, which is why it's often referred to as Jaws Bridge. How about that? Yeah. Other popular spots you will uh, recognize in the movie include the little fishing village of Manemsha and Main Street in Agartown. Following the success of the first film, the Jaws franchise was born. The Jaws 2 in 1978, film locations were set to be a continuation of Amity Island slash Martha's Vineyard. The movie was actually filmed in Florida, though. None of that was filmed in Martha's Vineyard. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, so Jaws 2 was okay, but the other Jaws movie jumped the shark, no pun intended. Yeah. (laughs) The film location for Jaws 3D in 1983 was in SeaWorld in florida and in the movie chief brody's son works at SeaWorld, and his younger brother comes to visit him so maybe like the first two i think were just um... i gotta rewatch that movie it's been so long yeah. chappaquiddick was a movie in 1969 and it was senator ted kennedy who was involved in a serious car accident in the chappaquiddick that resulted in the death of the campaign staffer mary joe kopeshny this story is retold in the 2018 movie chappaquiddick though most of the scenes were filmed on the mainland parts of the movie were filmed on the chappaquiddick island in the chappy ferry chappaquiddick documentary and a documentary on the death of jfk more kennedy tragedies john f kennedy jr and his wife and sister-in-law died in july 1999 in a plane crash off the coast of martha's vineyard chappaquiddick is available to rent or buy on amazon chappaquiddick is also on netflix um and in europe the movie is called the senator So yeah interesting all the connections that the kennedy family has to kind of that area like Martha's Vineyard and those islands really really strange strange stuff the whole Kennedy family and there's a yeah. whole curse surrounding them too yeah weird <laughs> isn't it weird yeah. so we're gonna talk about some romantic movies that take place on Martha's Vineyard so Martha's Vineyard is quintessential romance sand dunes blue sky blue ocean it's not a surprise that many people choose to get married in Martha's Vineyard or for just a simple couple's getaway so of course martha's vineyard movies fall into the romantic genre quite easily the first one on this list is sabrina and this 1995 remake of the classic 1954 film sabrina was also filmed in a in different locations around martha's vineyard specifically menemsha and vineyard haven the famous cottage is located in menemsha and once belonged to singer billy joel 
You can see bits of Main Street on Vineyard Haven when Sabrina and Linus go cycling around the vineyard, and there are some anomalies about this movie. So the halfway house that Linus donated that supposedly was at the end of Vineyard Haven, the real estate is way too expensive, and the lighthouse that they can see from the Menemsha Cottage, that's Egerton Lighthouse, oh. miles away on the other side of the island. Uh, okay. So there are some little discrepancies in this film, uh, mm -hmm. not extremely accurate, but again, Hollywood, they they shift stuff around as we talked about before with Practical Magic, just exactly. for the sake of, yeah, of yeah. logistics, you know. <laughs> You're uh, running five miles round trip? This doesn't make <laughs> any sense. You left her house without her keys? <laughs> <laughs> you left her car in town? What? So um, it says about Sabrina, the scenes with the vineyard are sadly too short. The next movie is called Jumping the Broom, and this says, With stunning coastal views, Martha's Vineyard is the ideal destination for a wedding. And 2011, black comedy Jumping the Broom is a hilarious film that shows the crazy antics surrounding a Martha's Vineyard wedding. The plot centers around Sabrina. Another Sabrina. A rich girl who will be marrying an investment banker with, a working, with working class roots, Jason, at her parents' enormous family estate in Chilmark. Jason's mother is widowed and not too happy about losing her son. Throughout the story, the couple battle opinionated family members who try to interfere with their nuptial plans. Most of the action takes place around the Chilmark estate. However, the Chilmark mansion was actually in Nova Scotia. Jumping the Broom is available to rent or purchase on Amazon Prime. It's also available just to watch on Netflix. Next up is The Inkwell, which is a coming-of-age story about a quirky New York teenager who comes to Martha's Vineyard for the 4th of July. He's fairly innocent and sheltered, unlike the cousins of the same age that he visits. Once again, like Jumping the Broom, class differences among African Americans are explored. The vacation involves two sisters, their families, and their mother. One husband is a Black Republican, and the other is a former Black Panther. <laughs> so subtle class differences involve questions like whether one can play tennis or not. <laughs> this is so random, tennis. Yeah. This movie showcases an older-looking oak bluffs with giant American cars on the street. The arcade also merits a scene in the movie, and lots of the movie, though, was filmed with North Carolina standing in for Martha's Vineyard. Oh, wow. So this next one sounded familiar. So I looked it up. This one's called Stuck on You. And I think it's about, okay, I'm going to read it. But part of the cast, I'm just going to say Matt Damon, Ava Mendez. All right. I'm going to okay. go over this again. But Cher's in this movie. Cher? Cher. I had no idea. See Cher. Okay. I know she acted, but I I never heard of this movie. So. Yeah. Um, I had to look. I never, I've never seen it. But the premise I remember seeing, I was like, this looks so stupid. So the 2003 movie uh, Stuck on You is a tale of conjoined twins, Bob and Walt Tenor, played by Matt Damon and Craig Kinnear. The brothers' wild adventures take them from their home on Oak Bluffs to Hollywood so Walt can pursue an acting career. Stuck on You is directed by Bobby and Peter Farley, who have been known to frequent the island. So then a couple other Martha's Vineyard-based low-budget, and I mean lowest <laughs> of the low-budget, that are available on Amazon Prime are The Eve, which is a 2015 horror thriller film about a group of four friends who travel to Martha's Vineyard to ring in the new year. Soon they start dropping like flies. Is the killer among them, or is there an unknown menace tracking them in their remote cabin? Wow. Yeah, that sounds 
horrendous. And then the second one is Off Season, which is a 2017 independent horror film about a rich woman who flees a financial mess created by her husband and rents a cottage on Martha's Vineyard. Are there dark and murderous locals that reside on the island during the winter? The dialogue, acting, and film quality are terrible. So don't say we didn't <laughs> warn you. Don't say we didn't warn you. Yeah. So there are some movies that pretend to be set in Martha's Vineyard but are actually filmed elsewhere. So the first one is Ghost or also The Ghost Writer from 2010. And this is a political thriller where the main character is supposed to reside on Martha's Vineyard, at least according to the book on which it is based. The film was shot mostly in Germany because Roman Polanski couldn't return to the U.S. without facing rape charges. Oh, God. Wow. <laughs> and the second one is called Losing Chase from 1996. And it's a romantic film which was the directorial debut of Kevin Bacon. Oh my God. The heroine, Helen Mirren, has had a nervous breakdown because of the stress of being upper middle class. Definitely rich white people problems. Anyway, her loving husband hires a nurse to help her recover and romantic issues ensue. Helen Mirren won a Golden Globe for this film. The movie is supposed to be set on Martha's Veneer, but large parts of it were filmed in upper state New York. How do you feel about the the, the real hashtag fictional maria's island wait the real fictional maria's island that statement that question confuses me can you <laughs> the, be more specific the use of coopville mixed with a little bit of new england i feel like i can see what they were trying to do mm -hmm. if if they were using the zip code kind of as a nod because they wanted to film in massachusetts and the movie took place in massachusetts but they actually had to film in washington i could see if they did it as like an easter egg kind of like you know little nod to massachusetts the real mm -hmm. deal what it was actually like the island that actually maybe inspired the location for the film i could mm -hmm. see why they would do that but then ultimately at the end of the day i'm like well maria's island's fictional yeah martha's vineyard is a real place yeah. Why would they give a fictional town in a movie a real working zip code? I just still don't understand. I still kind of don't understand it. I don't know. If we but ever got to like sit down and talk with somebody who actually worked logistics and like maybe worked that into the script or into the set, the set designers, I want to know who was responsible for that sign. Who did this? Who did this? I now knowing what I know, like where they were walking, what the direction they were going, what they passed. The town now is only one street. All the town shots are just on that one street. And it, before, it felt so much bigger, I guess, because yeah. like the close-ups of like the kids getting the ice cream or them waiting outside the the shop, you're like, oh, this could be down that street. It's it's just all one street because it's so right. picturesque. It gets great light. It has the ocean. You know, I just think it's really interesting that we kind of triangulated where everybody was. Yeah, another thing that I'm kind of trying to like work out in my mind is like Maria's Island in the movie. Are we thinking that this is like a small kind of quaint island? Because my, now remember, like this is where Maria came to plant her roots, right? When she got banished, I guess, from wherever she was. In the Are we going off the, the book or off the movie? Off the movie. Okay. So like, you know, in the beginning of the film, she was yeah. banished to her own island because she was shunned by the town or whatever. This seems like a cool, more, maybe a smaller kind of island because it, she established it as, as her own. So it wasn't, it must not have been established yet if she's establishing this island as her own. Yeah, I'm confused. If she was banished to that island where her gallows was, right? how did it become inhabited later on? You know what I mean? If she had her daughter... 
and she's the only person on that island right how did it get developed unless people kind of migrated there and then i don't know i I have no idea i there's so many questions because we know how different the movie is from the books Mm -hmm. right the movie doesn't necessarily really go into all of that it doesn't dive further into her origins and her backstory when the when those opening credits are happening and we see all the puritans are there any ships or anything we see i don't think there are so these puritans just like run off after she jumps yeah i didn't notice any ships but yeah they just like kind of scatter like cockroaches yeah <laughs> cockroaches cockroaches um so yeah we don't really know we we we, we won't really know we kind of just have to use our imaginations like mm-hmm. how her island when she was banished how she ultimately settled there she planted her roots there and then other people must have migrated there at some point for it to become populated later on down the line when the Owens family, to present day Owens family, resides there. Right. Because it's not an island in the books. It's just the, a town. Right. Right? Yeah. And she, Maria, like, bebopped around between Salem and New York, and then she kind of went back to what we think is just outside of Salem. Yeah. Uh, to live but in the movie i wonder why they made it an island it's just a weird amalgamation of yeah fact and fiction right real places fake people fake places real people fake places real zip codes yeah <laughs> I, we, we don't understand it mm-hmm. what was the reason for it mm. we don't know but it was a cool little little tiny detail that you spotted really early on that mm-hmm. we knew we were going to talk about yeah and there it is there it is all right so we hope you guys enjoyed this rabbit hole for today that's all we have for you guys but just a reminder that you can check out all of the sources pertaining to today's episode via our hero dot page link and we will add that in our show notes so thank you again to our patron and pal mirrors for creating this app and keeping creators like us organized so check that out if you're trying to keep your lists in order go sign up for an account on hero page next up we have our patreon if you guys want to support the podcast you can you know support us on our patreon anywhere from one dollar to fifteen dollars we have various tiers that you can sign up with and get some really cool rewards in return so on our our one dollar tier that's our seedlings this gets you access to our patron only polls where you get to weigh in on what topics you think we should talk about next it also gets you our monthly calendar so you can see what topics we have coming up for the month because we don't advertise those anywhere else so you'll be the first to know if you are under this tier and also you get a welcome shout out on the show um next up we have our three dollar lavender bud tier and with this tier you get our show notes for each episode in an aesthetically pleasing pdf you get our after hours posts if there's any extra tidbits or behind the scenes info pertaining to any of our episodes we'll post those along with a blog post or any extra photos if we have those and then you also get access to our specially curated spotify playlist we have already created playlists for our wmsr episodes as well as production dream playlists for each song episode what we want our songs to sound like when we have eventually get those produced so we have created playlists for all of those so you get those under our three dollar tier next up we have our five dollar lilac tier and with this tier you get access to our private facebook community where we host our monthly live stream plus access to our discord server where we host our monthly watch parties and also on the discord server you can join in on the discussion with other magnolia street quote neighbors and um via the various interesting channels 
and threads. So our next tier is our $8 tier and that's our rose tier. And you get access to extra audiovisual content such as a once a month full length video episode, including bonus videos, uncut footage, like cutting room floor footage, bloopers, outtakes. Uh, we have meditations over there, exclusive interviews, old home videos from the vault, spells, rituals, and much more. So we also have bonus content over there to coincide with our song episodes, such as full-length demo streams for our original practical magic-inspired music, plus lyric sheets, guitar chords, original scratch demos, bonus video performances of our songs, and more. And then lastly, we have our Wisteria Vine tier, and that's our $15 tier. Just like a twisting Wisteria Vine, there's a way for you to stay connected with us, the Stinas. In this tier, we invite you to join our private Marco Polo video messaging group. This app is totally free for both Android and iOS users. You sign up with your phone number or email, and we will help you do the rest. This is a great way to chat with each other in a more intimate group setting. It's like a face-to-face -face video recording. Uh, we love to show each other our pets and our gardens and anything else you'd like to share. We just like getting to know you personally. Yeah. And just a reminder that the higher the tier you sign up under, the more rewards you get because you can get all of the rewards of the tiers below it. Um, you can upgrade and downgrade or even cancel at any time. So to support the podcast, you can please head to patreon.com slash Magnolia Street Podcast. And we also just, uh, we have some merch. Uh, we have some awesome designs in our Teespring shop, which you can access through the Koji link in our Instagram bio. And you can get our original designs on pretty much any kind of apparel, as well as other kinds of items like coffee mugs, stickers, tote bags, and water bottles. If there's a design you like that you don't see it on, let us know and we can put it on that thing. Like if the one of the designs is not on a shirt and it's on a water bottle and you want that shirt, let us know. Yeah, I think I want Bezel Bubba on a shirt. <laughs> That's my new All favorite. Right. All right. Yeah. Um. So we do have an upcoming event that Christina told us a little bit about earlier on in the podcast. Uh, we will be taking over Salem, Massachusetts, and we are hosting a midnight margarita meetup on Friday the 13th of October from 9 p.m. to midnight. And we also will have some exclusive merch for this event, including a season one poster and a t-shirt with all like the show, our uh, episode dates on the back, kind of like a little tour shirt and tour uh, poster. And those will be available for purchase, which uh, we will be happy to sign for you at the event. If uh, you guys want a little sneak peek of what the poster looks like, Christina actually ordered one for herself and she did a little uh, video on our Instagram. You could check that out. Um, but those will only be available for a limited time release to celebrate or commemorate season one. I'm pretty sure we're going to do through November 1st, right? Spooky season. Yeah, spooky, spooky season, season release. Yep, that's right. So be sure to RSVP to our event via the Eventbrite link, which is where you can also find the update about the event location. The link will be in our show notes and it also is also in our Koji link in our Instagram bio. And space is limited, so if you guys want to come through, make sure you RSVP. And it is a generous love donation and you don't have to, it's not like a set ticket price, but we would appreciate any anything you want to donate. All of that goes to supporting the podcast. Mm -hmm. And we give it back to you with shirts and posters and music and meetups and trips. So mm -hmm. we want to make sure that you feel involved and it just helps us out a little bit. 
And there are some additional ways to support the podcast that don't cost you any money. You can leave us a Spotify rating. You can leave us a star rating if you're listening to us on Spotify. Or if you are an Apple listener, you can give us a written review. And that really helps bump us up in the algorithm. And then also, if you're on Instagram, we would appreciate any reposts or blurbs about our podcast. And But if you do, make sure to tag us at Magnolia Street Podcast in your feed posts, in your stories, and share us with your practical magic love and friends. All right, All right. man. Anything else? I think that's it. I'm spent. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm Christina. I'm Justina. And, and we'll, we'll see, see you, you next time. At that house down the street. I had to go higher. I can't go that low. <laughs> I'm a soprano.